wish I was a lion in the tall grass. Those of you who blow those of you who are listening on the debrief, sorry about that. I had some feedback, but I had to stop before I went crazy. Uh, are very familiar with how this works. You have downloaded the app. You have called in, and you are here to ask me questions about the latest episode of Bad Faith and anything else that's happening in the world that's on your mind. And those of you who are tuning in on uh, YouTube are probably a little bit more confused because I've only done this once or twice simulcast. I'm doing it this way to introduce you to the broader call-in audience. We will start the conversation here. And then uh, after a period of time, we'll take it over to Colin and finish it. Last time, I did two year, two hours on here. Uh, we ended up doing another three hours on Colin. It was a topic, the dating episode. You guys had a lot to say about that. And I probably had a little bit too much to say about that. But we had fun, and I really enjoyed all of your feedback. I know that some of you were still in the queue at the end of that episode. So I would not be surprised if some of you uh, want to get some stuff related to that episode off your chest still. But of course, this week, we spoke to uh, Matt Stoller, uh, an antitrust expert who really connected the dots on um, an angle of why we have so much inequality that we don't often discuss or perhaps don't discuss often enough on the left, which has some really interesting intersections with popular uh, topics like the uh, high meat prices and, of course, the retirement of Justice Breyer, who has been a real antagonist to um, uh, competitive, uh, pro-competitive antitrust legislation while he's been on the bench. So without further ado... I will go ahead and start the uh, Q&A. Oh, let me orient folks that might not have seen uh, today's episode since we are now doing call-ins the day of the release of the episode. And many people who listen are not premium subscribers, so did not have access to this full episode. Let me go ahead and play a quick clip just to orient folks as to what we are talking about. And then we can get to the questions. You know, when the pandemic happened and we had the CARES Act, that was like this moment of of bailouts. I mean, everybody got a, you know, a, a, I guess it was like a six hundred dollar check and a fourteen a fourteen hundred dollar check, and then small businesses got a bunch of loans. But but by far by far the massive amounts of money, like trillions of dollars, went to uh, big business and uh, and Wall Street through the Fed. Yeah, or just upward transfer of wealth in America. Yeah, I mean, there's a reason. So 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 Elon Musk. People sometimes complain about the you know, hundreds of billions of dollars that went to small business, which is, you know, it wasn't done well, but it was, it was fine. And we just, this SBA kind of sucks, but like we knew that going in, we were just, we're going to waste a bunch of money, but it's worth it to preserve some of our businesses. But like, think about it. Elon Musk was worth like $25 billion before the pandemic. And today he's worth $300 billion. Where did that money come from? It's not like Tesla is that much more profitable. It's just, that all came from the Fed, right? Like, so if you want to talk about, you know, why do and, and and those decisions were made by people who are like who have been wrong, like systematically wrong about the effects of their policies. So they'll come to you and they'll say, "Oh, well, this is the most this is the optimal way to do things." And I have a very fancy uh, degree that tells me this. But that's the we know what the actual effect is, and we know that they have been wrong. So the, the idea would be, I mean, obviously, the, our current elected leadership thinks very similarly to the people. You know, just general, there's an identity of interest there. But the idea would be hypothetically that if we had people who were not these technocratic economists in charge, people who not only were democratically elected, but like people who actually have, our, who have who have student debt and credit card debt. I mean, yeah. instead of all the millionaires that are now on the board of the Fed, 
I mean, they're, they're all millionaires, like just to be clear. And but that's not necessarily an issue of the Federal Reserve being independent, right? Like a, well, yeah, a populist go, president so, could nominate a populist. Sorry, somehow we keep nominating millionaires. I don't <laughs> well, know. Somehow. <laughs> Okay, so uh, we're off to the races. Rebecca, welcome back. What's on your mind? Hey, thank you. Um, Is it okay if I go in the direction of the discussions you've had about third parties in 2024? Yeah, of course. Whatever's on your mind. Um, Well, I've been really, really interested in those episodes and listening to different perspectives. Um, And as somebody, and I'm not here to boost my campaign or anything just but as somebody who is running for congress um i've thought a lot about third parties and Mm. in washington state we have a uh top two primary system which for anybody listening is not aware it's like california where everybody just runs against everybody else in a free-for-all in the primary there's no democratic primary it's just everybody Mm. and then the people with the the top two people with the most votes go through to the general and Mm. in washington state you can put whatever you, you can run as whatever you want. Um, there's no party registration. So um, the day of filing, I could get to May and I could decide I'm just going to make up my own party and write it in the box. And then that's what will appear next to my name. It could be literally anything. Mm. Um, and so it's easy in that sense. And, uh, it, but instead I chose to run as a Democrat. And uh, because of the barriers that the party throws up um and so i've thought about 2024 and like you know would it be better for somebody to run as a democrat for a president or uh, start third party and then the whole discussion of well maybe a democrat and then you know once the party blocks them and is farther along in the primary season then they could do essentially what dsa was calling dirty break for Mm -hmm. congressional candidates but on the presidential level basically do a dirty break and then become a third party candidate um, and I was wondering if you had looked into the history of the labor, the U.S. Labor Party from the 90s that attempted to get off the ground. No, but I'm very interested to have you tell me about it right now. Okay, because I, I am not a, an expert on it, but I read a long interview with one of the founders in, uh, it was the interview was in Jacobin. And um, they, there's been three attempts at a labor party. One was in the U.S., one was in the 30s. I don't know much about that. The next one was just some bullshit that Lyndon LaRouche made up, so it wasn't really a labor party attempt. Mm-hmm. And then um, the third one was in the 90s, and that was a very serious attempt at building um, an American labor party, and they got a lot of labor on their side. They created this formalized structure where something like, I don't know, 20% of American labor or something like that, a very high percentage was represented by their, you know, elected representatives sent from the union to this political party. Um, and uh, it ultimately failed and they, they just shut it down. And the article or the interview goes into a lot of reasons why, but um, I thought that would be, if you or uh, Katie Halper or somebody would be like interested, in, I think um, I'm trying to remember I can't remember, but there was an economist that was on, I think, your show in the past who was involved with it. But um, I'd be really interested in that because um, I think we need to, as the left, just 
learn from the, the prior attempts that have been done. Like, what would we do differently that they didn't do then? Because they made a very serious organized effort then. So how, how would we do it differently now if we were to start a third party? And also, we don't have that much time. You know, we have, I remember two years ago, everybody was talking about, do we have till 2030 to get to, you know, 100% renewable energy right. economy? And no now if you go on Sunrise's site, yeah. no, nobody talks about it. You know, they, if you go to Sunrise's website, they say, oh, yeah, by 2030, we need to get to like a mix of renewables and blah, blah, blah. Um, you know, they're not even on the hard line anymore. But that's how much time we have. So when people are like, oh, just organize. Oh, just, you know, um, it, it, organizing takes time. There aren't any shortcuts. It's like, well, we kind of need a shortcut because we don't have much time. So if yeah. people wouldn't go back and look at, anyway, I'll stop. I've been, I've been no, no, don't stop. I, I'm actually, I wanted to ask you what your decision-making process was to run as a dem. You referenced the roadblocks they threw up, but specifically given this kind of jungle primary scenario that you were, you're participating in, what made you still choose to run as a Democrat? Well, the first was, even if you look at polls and the parties, both of the parties are extremely unpopular and something like half of Americans uh, call themselves independent mm-hmm. or say they want a third party. But then when they actually vote, they don't vote that way. Um, and though, so that's, you know, in there's the idea in marketing, like you can ask people what they want, but that doesn't mean that's what they're actually going to do and what they're actually going to buy. There's a difference between what people they want or, or say they want and what they actually do. And when it comes down to it, people just don't really choose third parties. And so it's like, well, do I want to run a campaign that's, it's already so difficult to unseat an incumbent um, and already such a long shot. Do I want to make it even more of a long shot? So that was one. And then two was fundraising. Um, I would be kicked off Act Blue. They ran as a uh, non-Democrat. And um, that's the platform that huh. all donors, Democratic donors, are used to paying with. And so people listening may remember um, in the district next to me in Washington State, there was a candidate in 2020, Joshua Collins. And he ran, he was running as a Democrat for almost the whole time. Then he got to filing week and he started something called the Essential Workers Party. And this is going back to what I said, like, you can say whatever you want. I could, I could be like the vegan hamburger party and that's what I could run as. Like, um, it doesn't mean that there, there, there was an existing like organization or anything. He just, he started, he decided he wanted to start this party called the essential workers party, um, and announced I'm not running as a Democrat anymore. And that's how he appeared on the ballot. And then he got an email from Mac Blue saying, Hey, you're not running. We understand you're not running as a Democrat anymore. So you're kicked off our platform. And, um, yeah, that's what all of the base, like as a congressional candidate running against a Democrat, what you need, it, you need a lot of small dollar donations and where are those going to come from? It's the progressive, quote unquote, I know the word progressive doesn't have much meaning anymore, but the base and the base yeah. uses Act Blue to pay. And in terms of just, uh, you're going to get on another platform and then try to convince people to set up an account on this other platform. Yeah. Whereas if you send out, like I send out an email, right? And it has express links, and you can just click on it. And if somebody has an Act Blue account, they with one click, it gives them seven bucks, ten bucks, whatever. And all they have to do is click on that link in the email, and they give the money. And so it might seem small, but it's like I would take a huge fundraising hit. And I, you know, as as a run not taking, you know, running an insurgent campaign, I it, fundraising is already difficult. So that's one thing. Another thing, I would be kicked off of the 
platform that I use for sending emails, which is the main mm. source of my fundraising. And it's more difficult than you would think to find a good email platform. It's something that's taken up a lot of time in my campaign is just finding a way to be able to send emails. It's harder than you would think. I would yeah. be kicked off of that. Um, I don't have access to Van, which is what's, it's the canvassing software. I had it in 2020 and we used that. We couldn't canvass as the pandemic, but we made almost a million phone calls mm -hmm. and we used Van for that and recording all the data. But now the state party has decided this time they're not gonna let me have it. Um, but they did it in a kind of, I don't know if I wanna get into all the detail. They did it in a kind of sneaky way where I, uh, I can't have access to the state party's version, but I also can't go to the company and buy a separate version like I did in 2020. So I'm blocked from using any What's version of What's the rationale for not being able to go and buy the version independently? Um, the company van said you need a official denial from the state party for us to allow you to buy this. Jesus. Uh, it's, a, it's the same platform, but it uses different data. It's not the... Uh, the National Democratic Party's data. It's just commercial data they bought somewhere. And so um, NGP says, you need this letter saying you've been denied. So I went to the party and I was like, can I have access like I did last time? I'm not even asking for your data. I would just like to do what I did in 2020. And they said, well, unfortunately, we can't deny you right now because uh, uh, the DNC and all the various state parties have to meet and they have to work out data sharing so unfortunately we can't give you either an approval or a denial at this point and uh yeah i, I, I see yeah. ngp is like oh, what can i you know and uh it's a delaying tactic it's just a delaying 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 so um yeah i really yeah, appreciate you letting us know about that rebecca because honestly so much of the pundit i i completely acknowledge ignorance about all of these logistical things that sometimes get alluded to but i think it's important to talk about them specifically because there is a cohort of people that will say, you know, I like Nina Turner okay, but she's running as a dim and I just can't get behind her or, you know, mm -hmm. insert candidate name. And I, tr I totally understand where people are coming from with that. But Me if too. you resolve yeah. to make that decision, I think that you should make it knowing that there are non-nefarious reasons why people are choosing to run as a dim. And it's not just kind of a lack of courage or go get it. -ness, mm -hmm. But there are real obstacles and obstacles that perhaps we should be talking about it as a community, how to overcome like in off cycles, should we be trying to make, you know, shift progressive voters from act blue to another platform? Should we be doing that kind of work year round, regardless of the campaign season? Of course, absolutely. Mm -hmm being you know, clear-eyed about what the obstacles are at the same time up and until that point, you know, I, I do have ambivalence about shoulder, you know, saddling candidates who are already having an uphill battle against incumbents with all of these logistical hurdles that are enormously time consuming. You have more limited staffs and fewer resources and it's, mm -hmm. you know, this, these are, these are legitimate issues. Yeah, it, it's, it's hard. And, uh, you know, other people might make the counter argument like it is such a long, such an uphill battle and um, you have such a small chance of winning. What does it matter if you go third party? You're going to have such a small, ch you already have such a small chance of winning. And it's like, yes, but at least there's 
it's it's more of a chance. Maybe instead of one um, percent chance, it's a three percent chance of winning. You know, and like I'm not running a uh, messaging campaign. I'm running to win, and I did last time too in yeah. 2020. Um, but I am also realistic that it is it's an uphill battle, and uh, this is my district is not. Uh, it's not Detroit or New York or, you know, it's kind of like very um, densely packed, low turnout districts. It's it's a very different kind of race. So yeah. um, that's my answer is like, well, I, even if we're talking about low percentages, there's still a difference. Um, right. and, and people would have I, said people would have said, of course, that Bernie 2016 was a long shot as well. And so mm-hmm. it is what it is. Can you tell people uh, who might not have listened in last time or might not have made it to hour three or whatever it is mm-hmm. uh, that you called in um, a little bit about your race and how they can know more about you and your candidacy. Uh, yeah, thanks. I'm running in Washington's sixth congressional district. Um, and you can find me on Twitter, Rebecca for WA um, websites, Rebecca Parson.com. And uh, I'll definitely, I'll stop monopolizing so the other people in line can get to it. But um, one thing I'd be really interested in aside from the labor, you know, learning from the nineties labor effort is um, direct action and combining that with electoral politics, because that's, I don't a lot of direct action locally. And I would love to see if a third party started and in, integrate labor, but also have like a, um, strong direct action, national coordinated, organized direct action. That's not just sign waving, but actually shutting stuff down in an organized yeah. way across the whole country. So, but anyway, that's, Do you have, that's all for me. Rebecca, can you remind me, um, did you have a name for that nineties labor party effort? Or an, an article? Was, uh, yeah. The, the long interview was on Jacobin. Mm-hmm. But do you remember? And, uh, mm-hmm. I can try to pull it up right now or uh, well, how about you drop comments? it? Yeah, drop it in the comments of this episode, and I'll definitely pull that because that's exactly the kind of thing I'd like to be talking to people about on the show. And I, I appreciate you calling in again, and good luck, of course, in Washington sixth. Thank you. Bye. All right. Bye bye. Uh, doctor, doctor, it's good to see you again. What's on your mind? Uh, good evening, Brianna. Can you hear me? I can, loud and clear. Okay, so I'm going to participate in the railing conversation as well. Uh, <laughs> Go for uh, it. Um, I want to ask a question that uh, Katie Helper posed to me um, uh, last call-in, but after I dropped off. Sure. Um, she had asked, well, how did, uh, so to preface, I had mentioned that I went on a um, date with a white lady, even though my... Um, I decided that I'll marry a person of color. Um, um, she was asking, like, what did, how did the, the lady respond to my um, um, telling her that I'm going to marry a person of color? Well, mm-hmm. she um, she appreciated it. Typically, I'm quite frank with or frank to whomever I'm on a date with. Um, and I've noticed that, you know, the people appreciate that more. Um, uh the reason I had like gone a date on, on with with her is because she's a redhead and you know God rest her soul, <laughs> um, God rest her soul, Miss Frizzle from Magic School Bus. I fell in love with Doctor. her. Doctor, <laughs> <laughs> not Miss Frizzle, not you taking this poor woman out, getting her hopes up because you have a thing f- from the fourth grade for Miss Frizzle. <laughs> hey. <laughs> I thought she she showed you about the circulatory and system in your heart was never the same. Yeah. <laughs> Hell, you went to med school. Are you that kind of doctor? 
No, I'm a computer scientist with a focus in mobile security. Uh, okay. <laughs> but, um, yeah, I, I thought I was going to marry a redhead when I was a child, but, you know, <laughs> I thought I was going to marry a crystal or marry a redhead as a child. Uh, oh, Lord. Okay. So I, even to- I even told her the reason why we were on a date. <laughs> so and she found it amusing. Um, uh, just cause, sorry, just quickly end so we can get back to the uh, main conversation. So, like, um, even though um, I communicated uh, frankly the type of person that I want to marry. Um, the conversation kept going on the date. We had lots of fun conversing. And even now, um, we text each other about other people that we go on dates with. So she, um, long story short, you know, be frank with the person. Uh, she didn't respond uh, negatively. She appreciated the honesty and we're still cool now. So that's all I want. I, I got to ask you, how did that day end? In what way? <laughs> did you two end up enjoying each other's company before uh, in a romantic way before your friendship continued on down its uh, um, uh, platonic path? I you no, asked, no comment. You asked me about my <laughs> and I and I told you I'm a very physical person. And I think I'm step <laughs> at like conversing in, uh, with people. So um, <laughs> let's just say I I lived. My, I mean, I have gotten married, but. <laughs> okay. All right. Okay. You, you, you've given me your pound of flesh. And maybe also you gave the redhead a pound of flesh too. I'm going to move on before I get myself into too much trouble. Thank you, have- you, doctor, for following up. I really appreciate you putting a button on that story. No problem. Bye. All right, bye-bye. Um, I'm going to read a couple comments from the YouTube chat. Angato, thank you for your contribution, says, we need to secure and protect our voting apparatus for real, for sure, 100%. Um, and ooh, I thought I saw another one here, but I've misplaced it. If that was you, I apologize. All right, let's hear from Kusha. How you doing? Hello. Good evening, Brianna. Are you able to hear me? I can. What's in your mind? Definitely. Well, just to begin, based off what you were just telling doctor, I just want to let you know that was probably the most eloquent way I've ever heard anyone inquire about someone else's bedroom, <laughs> bedroom activity. So, hey, I just meant a kiss you. goodnight. I, I didn't, I wasn't implying anything about a literal bedroom. You were insinuating something pretty clearly, right? And I give you credit for how, how stealthy you were at it. So the Harvard Law background works really well in, in a variety of ways. Yeah, they, they teach you that in, uh, in torts. Uh, what's what's on your mind though? What did you call in to, to ask you. about? So, Certainly yeah. not that. <laughs> Definitely not. Well, it just came up uh, as you mentioned it. So, but what I did want to ask you though was uh, I had the opportunity to watch much, if not all, of the video you had with Matt today, mm-hmm. and um, that you uploaded. And there was something that said at the eight minute mark, and I just want to preface because the quote from Matt starts with the word they, and it's in reference to what you describe as this cult quote, this cult of folks pretending that they actually know what's going on mm-hmm. about the economy that is mm-hmm. and stuff like that. And so he says, quote, they um, uh, pretend to know what is going to maximize output, but it's all just false, but it's all, fa- but it's all just falsified. What they're doing is they're just trying to find ways of consolidating markets, end quote. And so I really want to pick through that exact line or those two uh, sentences that Matt says, because I think it has a lot to do with antitrust in general, as we understand it in the U.S. um, legal system 
and through the economic system of American capitalism, which, of course, in large part dictates uh, global capitalism, given that the U.S. has essentially a hegemony with its allies in that system. But um, just to uh, give a little bit of my background, I'm a fervent proponent of the worker council ownership model, which is what I believe Professor Richard Wolff constantly refers to in his description as labor co-ops or labor cooperatives. Mm -hmm. And most especially in my view, I'm a fervent proponent for the super big multinational corporations and business entities. So with that background in mind, what I'd like to inquire about, what I'd really like to hear your analysis on is, isn't it the goal ultimately to have, you know, few but super large, super efficient, super productive enterprises that treat all the employees fairly and decently, in large part because all employees will own and operate the enterprise. Because as far as I see this discussion of economic competition from business in the United States and other um, countries that have this um, spread of multinational corporations, especially from the stance of antitrust law in the United States, it's rooted in the framework and the deeply entrenched structure of modern information age capitalism. So now the last point I'll make before I really, because I know I've mentioned a lot of things for you to chew over. I know you have brilliant analysis. That's why I'm really curious to hear your thoughts is that, so is it so much the business combinations, like in the forms of mergers and acquisitions and sales of assets and tender offers that are inherently bad? Or is it more so the political and economic power concentrated in the hands of a super small minority of billionaires and I think in 2021, according to the World Population Review, it was 724 billionaires in the U.S. And the hecto-millionaires that thereby exploit this unconscionable asymmetry to take advantage of the poor and working class and promote cruel policies of austerity and warmongering through resource extraction and profiteering and, uh, and, and most concernedly for their own interests, rather than creating a better world for all human beings first and foremost. And so I really so like your to question is whether or not it's the, the problem is too few enterprises or if that you wouldn't care about the number, the exactly. monopolistic nature, if they were worker owned. It still strikes me that what the, the why would there still be a an interest in having I mean, you seem to be thinking there's a, a value in having a fewer number, a smaller number of enterprises. What if is I'm, the value in that? Please, I would love to elaborate on it if you let me. So I was having this discussion with my dad, um, it might have been yesterday, but I was essentially thinking through an example of a company like Disney, for instance, right? Disney, because uh, when I hear Professor Wolf talk about example, because he says worker co-ops, worker co-ops, labor co-ops often, but I was just really trying to think of an example of a company that's super big, that many people love its goods and services, and Disney really comes to mind. And I was trying to work through because I know Disney has so many subsidiaries that we all know and love, like Marvel Comics or Pixar or ESPN or Hulu or National Geographic or ABC or LucasArts or FX, you name it. And so Cause you're, you're cutting in and out a little bit. I don't know if you're oh, walking around or. No, no, I'm not walking. My apologies, though, if it cut out. In fact, I didn't really move anywhere. But I was just saying that Disney has many subsidiaries, right? It has ABC. It has Marvel. It has Pixar, LucasArts, ESPN. Hulu, National Geographic, FX, 20th Century Studios, and, and others. And so if I look at it like this, why would there necessarily need to, like Disney has these subsidiaries, right? And they are competing in some, you know, shared areas at points, right? Of course, like you'll see like 
TV shows and films be put out on like the FX area, but you also see it be put out through uh, Marvel and you also see some stuff through LucasArts, right? Because Star Wars is LucasArts and Spider-Man is Marvel and the Marvel superheroes like Thor and Captain America. But Disney doesn't necessarily mind like the competition between them. It, it does mind, I would say, maybe to qualify my statement, like um, to stop a cannibalization happening from within its no, subsidiaries. No, I think, I think I understand your point. And my my answer would be that I don't think that anything that, that Disney is doing would be characterized as cannibalization or any real competition. I think that to the extent that Disney has, I mean, it's streaming now mostly, so I don't know how much this program, these programming decisions matter. But Disney is not putting up similarly situated competitive shows against each other. That's the whole point mm-hmm. of having an integrated mm-hmm. pro- programming like that. If Disney is has a show that's the equivalent of A Bug's Life and also a show that's the equivalent of whatever that other cartoon is that came out about ants, 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 mm-hmm. <laughs> right? And they're like basically the same show. They're not putting them up next to each other, right? Mm-hmm. Those are, that's mm-hmm. the kind of those are the, you know Armageddon and Deep Impact aren't coming out of the same. Um, production company right that's mm-hmm. the whole point like the disney is not cannibalizing its own problem it's putting it's playing mm-hmm. the super bowl next to the real housewives finale because the people who are interested in one are not interested in the other mm-hmm. those aren't operated by the same franchise mm-hmm. but you get my point mm-hmm. so yeah. i'm not necessarily i think that it's prob- it's obviously right that a a worker owned monopoly or you know something close to a monopoly is than the alternative that we have right now but the reality I, I don't see any advantage from having fewer businesses in that context either. But again, I'm not an expert on this. This is a much better uh, question for Richard Wolf. I think next time we have him or someone like him, you know, Giannis Varoufakis, who's also spoken about this on the show, um, I'll definitely put that question to him. And I appreciate you calling in, Kusha. Absolutely. It was my great pleasure. Is it possible if I may ask one last thing before uh, I, I stop talking or would you just, because I know there are a lot of callers and I don't want to be. Uh, I, I think I have to move on to the next caller, Kusha, but I, only because, Kusha, if we're going to be honest with ourselves, you kind of front load these questions. I do. I like to give some <laughs> And I feel like it's my responsibility to take care of the whole of the whole yeah. community here. But, yes, you know, uh, I, I, I appreciate how much thought you put into it and I appreciate you calling and being such an attentive listener to the show. Thank you very much. I appreciate your transparent answer, and I really appreciate all the time and consideration you put. All right. Thank you. Keep keep the babe. Thank you. (laughs) All right. You up next. Unmute yourself and let me know what's on your mind. Hey, what's up, Bria? Sorry. Uh, I'll try not to have another long comment like I usually do. Um, Okay, so just as a follow-up to the previous caller's comment, it got me thinking of you guys may not have ever heard of this company. It's called Quanta Services. And um it's called what? Currently... I'm sorry, you're cutting in a little bit too. Um you know, let me get closer to the Wi Fi source. Can you hear me better now? Tom, you're real glitchy for me. I I can't I can't hear you. Now you're muted, but try again. Can you hear me now? I can loud and clear. Okay, let's try this. All right, sorry about that. Yeah, so I don't know. If you, I mean, obviously, you know, nobody pays attention to construction out of fun. But um, the previous caller and Matt Stoller's uh, comments reminded me of this. There's this company called Quanta Services. And I was thinking about the model of monopolization the previous caller was talking about in Matt. And one thing I think that might become more of a trend now, it's not that companies are buying up smaller companies and rebranding them. 
Quanta Services purchased out Howland Construction, which was one of the biggest and best companies you could hope to work for if you were working in my industry. And, you know, gradually things are changing. They're becoming a little bit more corporate, more obsessed with their bottom line. And it's only a matter of time before the process of gradual deunionization starts. But um, they were able to do this kind of like, you know, under the table. Nobody really knew. Howland hasn't rebranded. It's still Howland Construction. You still see the logos. So mm-hmm. most people don't know a lot of the companies in New York Construction are starting to get gobbled up by these big kind of corporations. That's just a comment on the last guy's comment, just to elaborate on it. Here's my question that kind of came to mind. And the, the also your first caller hit on a lot of this. And I was thinking of your episode with Miss uh, Figaro, Tesla and Figaro, mm-hmm. I think. Mm-hmm. I'm kind of like, I'm, I might be a little too black pilled for my own good. But <laughs> How do you mean? I like, I've become increasingly kind of like bitter and jaded about a lot of the online left. I mean, you know, I'm not saying you because you've worked on a political campaign, you have skin in the game. There are people who have skin in the game, but it seems so much of like the modern left is like its own self-sustaining ecosphere. And it's totally separate from real world politics. And, you know, for all the shit we can give AOC and the squad and all this other stuff, at the very least, they kind of put their money where their mouth is. And I like, especially Teslin's episode made me, made me realize this. Like who is our equivalent of the Federalist Society? You know, where's the kind of like borderline sociopathic leftist (laughs) politician? No, you know, like I'm talking like some, like where the fuck is like the left wing voter caging, gerrymandering, Supreme court rigging. And, and I'm, I'm increasingly beginning to realize you know, maybe with the gutting of any kind of like real authoritarian lefts, I don't, I don't mean to sound like a fucking like red brown fash over here, but <laughs> I think as I, I promise, my question's almost done. Um, I just think as and I, you know, maybe the that Anna or Hannah, whatever the the one that's always talking psychology, maybe she can elaborate <laughs> on it. But I wonder if like people like Jonathan Haidt talk about progressive minded people being very high on like empathy yeah, in terms of traits. But I don't like from my marginal kind of association with DSA types, I don't find progressives and leftists to be particularly like aggressive or highly competitive people. And I think there's something about the right, the way they circle the rat, the wagon, they have that like built in kind of, tribalism and the way they're like extremely cutthroat and how they do their politics. Sometimes I wonder if it's not just the profit-based model that we're like fighting. If there's something constitutional, like in our nature that makes us less suited to that sort of stuff. Yeah. I don't know, man. Like I think around one six, I mean, no one could really say it, but there was this sense that, Oh, the left has a lot to actually be angry about. And we would never, you know, we, we have a legitimate case to be marching at the Capitol and we would never do this. And there's something that borders on envy <laughs> as we're watching these One hooligans, you know, do what they did. Or, you know, even the even the extent to which they had this big rally this past weekend, uh, this uh, anti-mandate rally. You know, I would have loved to have seen that many people mobilized around, I don't know, healthcare, <laughs> you know, um, around force the vote. So I don't know. Maybe there is a like a intellectual kind of psychological reason to it. But I also think that frankly, something that doesn't exist on the right 
that exists on the left is 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 self-censorship from within our own ranks. So to be honest, even though I know a lot of conservatives don't like Trump or were embarrassed by him and, you know, think that some of this uh, CRT stuff or the anti-mask stuff is kind of silly, they just keep their mouths closed about it. Like, I don't go – maybe it's because I'm not in those communities and so maybe it's my own bias. I completely caveat that that could be the case. But I'm not seeing – I don't turn on Fox News and see them calling out the – the, the more radical parts of the right. And you can say that you can criticize them for that and say, oh, they don't have integrity. Oh, you know, that they're, they're why fascism is allowed to bloom. But being the radical faction on the left that isn't actually that radical and getting so much blowback from the mainstream left, you know, we've talked endlessly on this program in the dating context and other contexts about how most of our conflicts end up coming from liberals, not conservatives. And I have the people on the panel, on the men's panel last week, said they would more easily date Republican women than liberal women, right, or or, or men. Like, that says something about the, the censorship that comes from within our own ranks. And there is this instinct to say, don't do that. Don't try that. You're going to look dumb if you attempt that. You know, you're going to make us look bad. You know, there, I remember when, when that, um, when the maniac uh, shot uh, those conservatives on the baseball field and he had tweeted like once about Bernie Sanders or whatever and everyone rushed to like blame Bernie Sanders. You know, how many right wing attacks have had manifestos accompanied with them that like explicitly said that they support some politician or some conservative ideology? And that stuff never sticks because there's there's no apology. You know, Donald Trump modeled this better than anyone else. If you don't even apologize for things you're being criticized for, it's very difficult to build a media cycle around you that sticks. If you just don't acknowledge it, like whatever, I wasn't wrong. And you can, you can just gaslight people. <laughs> you can gaslight an entire country into doing whatever you want them to do. And obviously I'm not sitting here saying like Trump is the model for our, our political agenda, but there is something I think to be learned um, from what happens when you have the freedom to try stuff within your own kind of political faction. And that freedom just does not seem to exist among the broad institutional left. Yeah, 100%. I, I will totally, totally concede. I had massive penis envy when I watched one six. Everybody <laughs> shit over, oh my God, you know, it's day of remembrance and they got Lin-Manuel and they're doing all this cringy shit. And I sat there really just thinking to myself like, 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 dude, I I really fucking hope these people like blow that building up. It, okay. Like, I can't. Well, I can't yeah. endorse that, Tom, and you're going to no, get no, me no, demonetized. Don't, 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 yeah, yeah. Sorry, do not endorse it. We are not advocating we political even, violence. Not, yeah, right. <laughs> I'm just saying, and there are plenty of countries where politicians get into fist fights. They're beating each other with canes. You know, it's like <laughs> that British Parliament video maybe, you're thinking of. <laughs> maybe some, maybe to some extent politicians should be kind of sort of afraid just a little bit like some level of accountability well they should be afraid and that doesn't mean political that doesn't mean of of violence but you know that's what that's what um uh chris hedges said i think the not the last time he was on the show but the show before that the reason that we don't see any response from our politicians the reason why there is no political response why there's that princeton study from 2014 was it that said there's like a five percent chance that the people's will will ever be executed in government and, and there's like an 80 percent chance a corporation's will will be executed in government i mean it's because there is no we have no leverage we have no accountability system anymore there's no media accountability there's no electoral accountability incumbents are largely safe it's a money game a global pandemic and you know, millions of people dying isn't enough to motivate 
the population, people are so disaffected that they genuinely don't think that anything is going to work. It's not that they don't care. They just have been trained, not wrongly, (laughs) but they have been trained to believe that they could lie down in the street and die and nobody would care because so many Americans, millions of Americans have been lying down in the street and dying for years and literally nobody cares. 64,000 people a year before COVID were dying from a lack of health care. God knows what number they're going to come up with when all of the dust settles and the bodies are counted of the last two two years or however long this is going to last. You know? Yeah. Uh, it's it's like the I move. I recently I'm talking about New York construction. This will be my last comment, and then I'll sure. shut the fuck up. Sorry. Um, I read. So I'm I'm from New York, born and raised, but I actually recently just moved out to uh, Seattle, Washington. Oh, and are you gonna are, go, like, are you are you in um Rebecca's district? No, I don't think. No, I'm in Queen Anne. This is like Bougieville over here. So oh, okay. Yeah, I don't think this is her district. I mean, she can leave. A, I'll look her up right after this. Promise, and I'll donate to her if she is. But um. <laughs> Yeah, this is like people talked about the homeless problem here, and it, it's mm. it's fucking crazy because this is like, you know, radical neo shit lib city. You know, you got like all this like oh Black Lives Matter signs everywhere, and then there's like some homeless black guy, and all like the supposedly progressive people are just like fucking stepping over him. Mm. I, like I swear to God, it was it's it's like one of the first things I saw when I got here on Fifteenth Avenue. There's an animal clinic a big fucking sign and everybody's just stepping over this homeless dude like nobody gives a shit over mm. here so yeah i i 100 i feel what you're saying all right i'll shut up <laughs> well thank you for calling tom i always appreciate it thanks all right kyle you're up next what's on your mind hello hey kyle hi brianna how's it going i'm doing well what are you thinking about this afternoon um uh, man uh, nothing too much. Uh, like, how was your day? Like, give us a little rundown. Like, last time I talked to you, <laughs> you went to the hill, and you're talking about how you had like a really nice uh, makeover they gave you. Like, what was your day like? <laughs> um, well, I actually, I normally do a weekly hill hit on Wednesdays, and I oh, okay. they asked if I could do it today, so I had to get up and get dressed, which is why I decided to simulcast because normally I don't put makeup on <laughs> on Mondays, yeah. and here we are. So we might as well let somebody other than the viewership over at Rising uh, see it. Um, and after I did my hill hit, I posted yeah. some posting. I had a couple of calls today with some folks about some follow-up businessy type things. I did some scheduling for some good upcoming episodes with some congressional candidates. I'm very excited about Thursday's panel, which we've got put together to talk about all of this Joe Rogan cancel Spotify and Michigas. Um, and I watched a couple of episodes of the Sopranos. <laughs> nice. So like for your work, like throughout the day, you'd say like you reach out to like a lot of people and, you know, have to network, make really important calls and all that. You're pretty generally um, like- Well, it depends. I mean, it's funny how the day fills up. I used to get really down on myself because I'm like, you don't have a real job. How did you manage to get through this whole day and nothing actually happened? You should like, you should be like, I know it's guilty. You feel like it's it's guilty to feel that way, but like, no, you should definitely, obviously, be like grateful. I don't want to tell you be grateful or whatever, but like, shoot, I have like a job where I work remote, and like, shit, I feel guilty and like, you know. grateful for this and like stuff i have to do like okay if i'm going to do this episode tomorrow i have to listen to i have to read glenn Glenn greenwald's posts that he's been writing about the spotify stuff i listened to his call-in episode about the subject i read a number of articles about the subject i read all of the tweets and things that the other guests that are going to come on tomorrow have written and said about it to try to get a sense of the contours of the arguments and took some notes 
reviewed some First Amendment law. You know, I've got to re- I got to consume all the content. Oh my you know goodness! What I mean? Which yeah. takes time. Definitely, I I can't. You know, I went I went to first STEM major, electrical engineering. I I can't stand reading, to be honest. <laughs> Luckily, my work, I'm just like making drafts for you know pool plans for. Uh, I, I don't want to say, but I'm making uh you know just working in utility poles and like. Well, for me today, every like example, I had to call somebody to see if we could possibly they'd be okay with putting a pole in their yard, and like you kind of have to like. I mean, we have the right of way, so we could just do it, but we don't want to look bad. And like, I don't want to just like, you know, ruin someone's lot if they have like plans for it. So like, sometimes I get really nervous because sometimes people call back like angry as heck. And like, you know, I was working Verizon before. I'll say it now because I don't work anymore. <laughs> and like, I could like I ended up getting to a point where I would be barking at people back, and like I didn't take it. Like, I'm like no. And so like, I, luckily this job, like I definitely I'm mostly just working on a computer, working like with some close people, and just like you know answering questions here and that. Like, oh, is this look good? This need to be cracking this and that. And it's like mostly just doing homework like all the time. So like, yeah, yeah that's I, I kind of feel you on that one. But like, that problem solving work is frustrating. I mean, as a lawyer, people people are always asking me and saying things like, oh, you're a lawyer, you know this, you're a lawyer, you know that. I'm like, no, you don't sit around in law school memorizing stuff. You know, it, that's not how it works. They you learn how to think. How to think. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And then you spend your whole life Googling stuff. <laughs> like, yeah. It's like you ask me a legal question, I'm going to Google it. I'm going to do exactly what you did, except I have access to Westlaw and I can look up you know, case law and precedent and give you an actual answer as to how this is probably going to come out. And I can understand the case law better because I have legal training, but I'm just Googling it. <laughs> do, you, do you feel like what you pay, you got with, like worth what you paid for? Like you still owe student debt as well as like a double question? Yes, sirree, I do owe student <laughs> debt. Yeah. For uh, sure. But um, yeah, I mean, that, that may the, coming around. I'm not looking forward to that. I, I'm, I want everyone to just like not pay back. And we should be like, right, no, we're not doing this. Biden, this is your problem. You, you look what you did. <laughs> yeah. Like, I mean, I don't know if you, I mean, we certainly have done some episodes about this and whether or not there's going to be a meaningful organized debt strike on May 1st when the moratorium is supposed to be lifted. I got, I checked my mail today and I have uh, lots of mail from SoFi and all of these refinancers who are trying to get some last grasp of the apple or something or maybe exploit the fact that maybe we have anticipation, uh, resentment about, you know, anxiety about the, the, the payments starting up again later this year. I don't yeah, know I'm what. I'm trying to come up with a bunch of different plans and like, I, I don't know, I'm just trying to see what they're asking for first because they're going to be like, oh, yeah, you make enough. You could pay like 300 plus. And that's going to just end me like, oh, God, like, ah, yeah. th- 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 not end me. I mean, honestly, like, I know people have second jobs. I, I don't have to have a second job. So I'm, that's I'm stupid grateful for that. But like, ah. yeah, but nobody has <laughs> like whatever it is. I mean, nobody has. I, 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 and I don't mean to. I'm not I'm not trying to, like, compare. But my and, and I, I'm not trying to compare because obviously I was making a salary where I can make these payments. But like mine were twenty three hundred dollars a month. <laughs> oh my god <laughs> oh my so like god. I, I know that yes i'm grateful that like i earned a, a a large income as a lawyer but like it wasn't so large that i didn't feel 2300 dollars a month <laughs> Do you know what I mean? 20 2300 <laughs> that's that's my whole month pretty much like right I, which I, made I, me I, terrified when if if i lost my job you know if, i felt job insecurity too i wasn't I wasn't the greatest lawyer. You know, I was always being threatened, like your your hourly okay. count is low and all this stuff. So I was afraid that if I lose my job, my monthly expenses are so high that my even if I have savings, it goes like in a blink because 
the savings go, go so fast. No, I got no. Twenty twenty was the worst year of my life. I got kicked out the house because I was way too like depressed and stuff. Uh, because I didn't get my degree in my uh, twenty eighteen was supposed to. I had failed two mm-hmm. classes last semester. Uh, saw I had a friend. I saw a friend get killed in a mass shooting in Jacksonville, Florida. Oh, uh, I'm so sorry. Elijah Michael Clayton. Yeah, it was really devastating. And that was like the beginning of my last semester in, in college. And like that messed me up so bad. And I became so obsessed with like politics even more so since 2016. And like I was way too focused on politics. And like that stuff's all like takes away from my work. Like I'm trying to learn other stuff. Like that's just like yeah. it takes like if you have anxiety about stuff, you can't think yeah. about it because you don't care about it. And you're just like, this is stupid. I'd rather be thinking about like real stuff. And like, yeah, so it's to me back. But yeah, 2020 was crazy. I got kicked out and like I had a decent savings because I had like a 19 hour, hour job. I was, I was in, I'm from L.A. I was living in L.A. at the time. I was working at a cannabis lab. I was working at the, uh, my second one, making like 19 an hour. So I had like a decent, decent savings. I was living with my mom, but she kicked me out. And I was just like bouncing around for a while. And my entire savings, like 6,000, like in six weeks, like I was homeless. Granted, I was honestly not going to front. I was out of my mind, really panicking, really weak. I, I, so crazy to survive that. But like my grandparents took me in after I ended up, you know, going in and out a couple of like uh, hospital visits and stuff like that. And then just landing in suit, like a little program for a month, whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, that's a lot more than I wanted to share for real. But like, <laughs> yeah. Kyle, that's really relatable because uh, in the last episode, I said everything, every single detail about my personal dating life that I absolutely should not have shared. <laughs> but I want you to feel comfortable sharing here because I think a lot of yeah. people who are listening relate to your story. And we don't hear, look, I hope so. people call me an elitist. I own it. But like, I like to have a space where we can all hear what everybody else is going through. Because isn't that the whole point of the solidaristic project? Not that we're all exactly the same, but, but we can all relate to each other in these ways. So I appreciate your vulnerability in sharing that with us. Yeah, thank you. I, I really wanted to talk, you know, like, I really appreciate the space. You know, like I said, I don't really get to talk too much at work. So I don't want to, like, mess up, like, relationships at work. And I want to keep it very professional. And like, I want to make six figures some down, somewhere down the line. So I don't want to mess that up. And so, like, I kind of, like, reserved. I only have one friend out here. I'm only living in Charlotte, North Carolina. I moved out here from LA um, and like trying to make it. Um, my one friend's going to move back to Ohio where that's where I met him. I went to the University of Dayton, so the electrical engineering mm-hmm. there. Um, and he's going back and I have one other friend that lives here as well, but he's kind of young. He's like 21 and like, uh, I don't know. He, I feel like he still has like a naive perspective, especially when it comes to dating. Because like now, I mean, I'm getting comfortable enough or like I mean, this week I kind of like balled out because I tried to get some like new clothes because I had like nothing. I had all my stupid homeless clothes. <laughs> and so I needed to get some new clothes because I wanted what to. What like... did you buy? What What's your day outfit? What's it look my, like? Uh, you hit up uh, my Instagram. I got like some of my clothes on there. <laughs> I, I, like, like, my, like if I get a date, like she just show up and be like, oh, this is the same exact fit as your pink. I'm like, yeah. <laughs> you're Whatever. Not, you're already accepted. Yeah. <laughs> Whatever. Look, I told this story on the girls, the the women's episode, a dating episode we did in August, and low key, the guy I was dating got mad and stopped dating me after that episode aired. But right? I, Why? I, we, I had one go to date outfit. Like I had, I bought this Reformation dress, and y'all know, the girls know that Reformation 
is not cheap. I bought this Reformation dress. I was like, I'm going to get, I'm going to get everywhere out of it possible. So I, that was my go-to date dress. I felt fire in this dress. I used yep. to get compliments from the, like the waitresses and stuff when I would walk into the oh, restaurant. Oh, women compliment you? The That's women. You know. Exactly. Like, oh, the women really knew got, what was up. No, yeah, exactly. it wasn't what the men said. Man, like, exactly. like we're all you know, desperate out here. <laughs> you should wear what, wear what feels good. Wear what makes you feel lucky. Maybe don't post it on Instagram unless you absolutely have to. Because once you start right. posting on Instagram, everybody can see it. But like, whatever. Yeah. Yeah, be a little Don't strategic get shamed with out it. of it. Gotta be a little strategic with it, you know, like, <laughs> you know, be careful what you post, this and that. Yeah, I definitely, like, you know, try to not be, like, too crazy political. I mean, 2020 was crazy. That was, like, after George Floyd, L.A. was going wild. Like, I was, like, mm-hmm. I want my, when my friends were in the protest, like, yelling at cops, and I was, like, oh, shit, like, I want to be there, but I'm scared. I don't know, kind of, like, <laughs> I'm not trying to be there, and, like, you know, that's just, I, my mom moved out the city to the burb, so I was just riding that privilege that, you know, she established at that time, but, hey, she kicked me out of that, so whatever. <laughs> well, look, Kyle, it sounds like you're on the up and up. Check back in with us in a little bit and let us know how things Got are you. going in Charlotte yeah, take- and on the dating scene and yeah. with not Verizon. <laughs> <laughs> and not rising, definitely not rising. Oh, well, I'm still using them though. They're, they're actually pretty good. I'm not gonna cap like it. It looks good, but we get a deal. But yeah, whatever. All right, take care. <laughs> take care, Kyle. Bye. Uh, Grace, you're up next. Welcome back. What's on your mind? Oh wait, first before you answer that, I want to read off the screen. Catherine Nichols wants to know how to access video streams. I think I've seen her comments in the Patreon, so I want to make this really clear. Patreon subscribers not only get an extra episode every month that drops on Monday, every week rather, that drops on Monday. So every Monday you get an additional episode to what everybody else gets. You also get video of that episode, which drops a little bit later in the day than the full audio, just because Ben has to edit it and get it together. So I put a link to the video as a Patreon post. So you'll see the post of the episode audio and then a couple hours later you'll see the post of the video click on the video and it's basically an unlisted youtube link and you can watch it there that's how Catherine. i hope that's clarifying okay um go for it grace hey uh before i start what's the song you play at the beginning oh that's so funny um it's a friend of the it's like the brother of this guy that i maybe was dating uh who has this group <laughs> And like, I really liked it and he won't sue me because I know him. So I use it for these things here. This, this song. Yeah. (laughs) It's um, called, I wish in the band, the group is called quarter water. Quarter water. Okay. Awesome. I I love it. Um, But uh, anyway, um, yeah, I want to talk about how we can come for these companies. Um, and just like, why aren't we boycotting them? Why are we still ordering from Amazon? I like, I'll, I'll say people, I think we're on the same page. And I'm like, but you're still ordering from Amazon, though? Like, we can't give it up. Um, but I really feel like our economic, we got to harness the economic power and then use that in conjunction to like build things around electoral things through that as well yeah it's an interesting question because i remember (laughs) at various points people bring up boycotts and the the people that like are in charge and know things you know all of the organizer types they like they at each of these moments when people have been like boycott amazon like around the bessemer protests the bessemer union drive there were folks who said okay well let's support the the amazon workers by boycotting and then all of the organizers said no don't do that you know we, you know, we, we want, we want to have the threat of us withholding their labor. We don't want to hurt the company 
through this other prong, right? Like we want to be the one that's controlling the lever of um, stress that's on Amazon. I don't know. Like that was this rationale that was put out. And I, you know, I accepted it. Like whatever, they're organizing. I'm not trying to do anything that's going to upset their efforts. But I can't say that I 100% understand it. So maybe that's just me. But it does seem like every time there is one of these movements to say we're going to boycott this or that product, there are this chorus of voices, again, from within the broad left, that that has these – I don't know. Am I the only one who's seen this that says things like this isn't effective for that reason and this isn't really going to work and this is not how real organizing works and all of this kind of stuff? Because I'm with you. I I will confess. Here, I'm going to say things that I – admit things I shouldn't say. I have not had an Amazon account. I made it a really long time without an Amazon account. I just bent the knee and got one like maybe six weeks ago because uh, I was having some grocery delivery problems. <laughs> and I like, it, it, like I, I, I bent the knee and I got it so that I could get, I, I confess, it was because it was to get some groceries. And I, I felt guilty about it, but it also just kind of felt like, well, me not having an Amazon account, one person in the middle of the world isn't doing anything for anybody. And I'm just getting worse quality food for no reason or ordering out for no reason because it's not a real organized boycott. If somebody told me the same with student debt, or the student debt strike, if somebody told me we're all going to do this together, cancel our accounts, don't pay our loans, we're doing this together, then I'm completely on board. But I don't know why. It doesn't seem like there's a real energy or appetite for that. Yeah, I feel like, I mean, we have to be the somebodies, I guess. Um, And I just personally think that like Amazon's a good place to start because they control prices um, Mm. and that they vary between, you know, it's like not because people are like, well, you know, what are you going to go to Walmart? And it's like, well, Walmart, at least we're all paying the same price. I mean, we're all paying the same price for the same goods. Um, And that's kind of a distinction. Um, So, yeah, I'm just. And I was totally like not buying Oreos, you know. Yeah, well, that stuff's easy. I mean, I, was, I don't, I don't, I don't right. buy. I mean, I don't know. Maybe that's I don't. I don't either. But I was like saying to my husband in the gas station, like, put down the Frito Lays, like, <laughs> stand in solidarity with striking workers. Yeah. <laughs> um, but well, yeah, one of I our, mean, yeah. Sorry, go ahead. Oh, I just think it's a really. I think it's an opportunity. We just have to pick one and do it. Um, and yeah. then, and then like, as far as like these other monopolistic, you know, structures, we can also, um, use other like nonviolent resistance tactics, um, that don't necessarily, you know, not everyone's built for this, for going out in the streets. And so, you know, we could also all turn off our power at the same time of the day, um, do, you know, use disruption, um, because I think you, you got to disrupt it. And I feel like people are downtrodden right now, but like the thing is we have, I don't know the when people are standing up, the power is working. <laughs> yeah, I mean it's it's interesting because I mean I was thinking about Stoller um, talking about some of the meat price issues, and you know no one's talking about. I mean the when you turn on TV, no one's talking about the idea that the price of meat has anything to do with monopolies. And I can see a world where instead of there being this antagonism against. Democrats spending and driving up the cost of meat. There's a solidar- solidaristic um, relationship between farmers who aren't getting the pass-through costs, right? Who aren't getting the benefit of these rising costs because they're being exploited also by these four management companies, Tyson and whatever the other three are. And for us to be able to leverage their exploitation and the consumer's ire into something that looks more like a movement than letting the right just run away with this argument that somehow meat is expensive because 
Biden doesn't love America and burgers and spent too much on social welfare programs. <laughs> yeah, I just think about like when Cory Booker was running and they were like, he's he's a vegan, he's going to ban meat. <laughs> and you're like, oh, my God. Um, but I actually like with something like the meat prices, I think here locally, at least where I live, like local meat is actually more in line. I'm a vegetarian, but but local <laughs> meat is more in line price wise with like what just, you know, factory meat um, is at this point. So. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I just think we have to like, look at those angles. Also, I tried to do something that you asked this week. I made a TikTok. <laughs> um, Did you really? About, um, about the BNSF strike. I just wanted to shout that out, um, that just got struck down by, um, it's a, it's the, a railroad, mm. um, and it's owned by Warren Buffett and they just, um, they, a federal judge in Texas just barred 17,000 workers from going on strike because they know bring the supply chain to its knees mm. um, and they've stepped in. But I just want to shout them out because uh, like that's something that I'm not hearing anyone covering right now. Yeah, good good call. Do you want to shout out your um, TikTok handle? Uh, it's at Mary Moon 3 with three O's. But uh, but uh, honestly, like it has like 11 views. It's terrible. I've <laughs> Let's let's get you to twelve. There's, let's get there's you to shadow at least twenty um, <laughs> Well, but, thank, um, you, thank you for flagging that. Like, I, that's funny. Is it's difficult now that I'm doing these straight up long form episodes. There's fewer opportunities to just do a quick hit of the rundown of the news. So I would like to start to try to do some more live streams where we just we do more of that because there are so many things that go under the radar that need to be discussed. So I appreciate you flagging it here. I, I just want to uplift the uplift the labor movements. Also, just future thing, um, I would love for you to talk about. We need to talk about Bill Cosby. Oh, <laughs> have you watched? I I have not. Uh, I did four hours straight last night, and my brain is in is in because well, I kind of objected to the premise of the title. <laughs> well, uh, exactly. Do we need to talk about exactly <laughs> exactly or like yeah. Um, and, you know, whatever. I, I, I have mixed feelings. You know, the what's his face, the host of that? W. Uh, Kamal Bell. W. Kamal Bell. His podcast with Hari Kondabalu was one of my favorites before 2016. You I know, used to listen to it, too. I loved Politically Interrupted. And when I started this podcast, my idea, like, I liked, there's, there's something about the levity mixed with the facts, mixed with the sound effects and the little, like, interruptions where it's like let me explain this concept and then go back to the interview like it was it there was something light and fun and like infotainmenty about it that i just really liked and i thought they had really good chemistry with each other then 2016 got going and it got a little libish and i remember them making fun of jill stein and i was like <sighs> um even though harry i think was very pro bernie and w was like bernie curious then after they made fun of Jill Stein, apparently her team reached out and they interviewed her on the show and was so compelling that Hari voted for her in California. And I think W, I don't know if he disclosed whether he did or not, but he was like Stein curious. And that made me like them again. But it seems like Hari was always the one that was more to the left and more willing to like listen. And I'm afraid that W might not have handled this issue in the way that I would have liked. And that is why I saw the title of that series and immediately was like, this is not for me. But Grace, if you're telling me I need to watch it for the discourse, I will watch it for the discourse. I mean, I'm just thinking like in terms of when you did the Sex in the City episode, it would be cool to get like a panel together. I don't honestly think that I'm the best person to speak to my opinions on the matter, but um, 
but yeah, I definitely, it, it's a lot. Um, and also if you, once you get done watching the Sopranos, the new one is utter trash. Um, There's a new I, Sopranos? Yeah. They made a movie. It's called like the saints of, uh, Newark, I think. The, With the same uh, characters? Except it's, I guess Tony gets. I mean, well, I haven't no, seen the end, but I no. He's like alive, so I know he's like it's his childhood story, and they they fucked it all up, and it's really awful. So the I loved The Sopranos, but the yeah the remake is awful. Well, that's a bummer, but now I'm gonna probably watch it because you know I love it. I know. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> but anyway, well, I appreciate you. Have a good one. Thank you, Grace. You too. Uh, I'm going to read off the screen. Uh, Lisa Mojica points out that Zephyr T-Chat has a good explainer on why not to do boycott. So definitely want to get her back on the pod. I was When she was running for office, we were planning to have her scheduled, but then um, she ended her run. So we we dropped off contact. But um, I don't know. Uh, maybe I should try to get her back in the queue. But first... Anna, you were called out by name earlier as someone who might be able to offer some psychological perspective of why the left doesn't seem to be able to get as riled up and active as the right does and storm the Capitol and such. What do you think? Was I really? I must have missed that. Yes. An earlier caller, it might have been Tom, um, was kind of fetching about why it is that the, the left never gets off its tuchus. And wonder if and wondering if there was something like constitutionally specific about leftists that made us unable to kind of act with the you know strength uh, that is required to get things done politically in this country and instill fear in our leadership that makes them responsive to the people's needs. Oh geez, um, oh man, I don't know. Uh, I think. Well, uh, I don't know. <laughs> I I think that. Um... Ooh, Anna, you just went to a weird buzzing noise. Get back in the queue, Anna, and I will bring you up. I'm going to make Day the next caller. Anna, I will I will come back to you, I promise. Just get back in the line. And I'm also going to take this moment to go ahead and end this stream. We've been – you guys stay here on call-in, but we've been on YouTube for about an hour. So I'm going to go ahead and end this YouTube stream as a reminder – this is an episode of The Debrief on Colin that I'm simulcasting so that people who aren't familiar with Colin can get a sense of what's going on over there um, and join the conversation. You just download the app, the Colin app. It's one word, C-A-L-L-I-N. Um, and you go to the show. It's called The Debrief, or you can search for my name, follow me and the show, and you will get notifications about when I schedule the new episode. I'm doing episodes of The Debrief the same day the episodes of Bad Faith come out, so Mondays and Thursdays. Broadly, we're here to talk about the new episode, but we can also talk about whatever else is on your mind and what's going on in the news. I appreciate all of you coming to listen here on YouTube. Come over to Colin, continue the conversation. Day is one of our favorite callers. So if you are not listening right now, you're going to be missing out on some good stuff. And everyone, regardless of whether you have Apple or Android, can listen to the episodes once they post, even if you can't call in to participate because the phone app is only for iOS at this point. Everyone can listen in the browser app after the podcast air. I know that's not ideal, but they're working on I'm sure they're working on Android accessibility. So to everyone on YouTube, keep the faith. Bye-bye. Day, what is on your mind? Hey, first of all, thank you. That was really kind of you. Um, So I want to pull up what my thought was, but really quickly, because this person asked me, messaged me on here last time and I forgot, and they asked me again, Clifford Cameron, 
wanted to let you know that they sent you two guest resources over on Patreon. So I just wanted to start by saying that. I saw, I saw, I saw Clifford. I'm, okay. I'm on it. Perfect. Okay. So one point that I wish got to be fleshed out on this episode was why no one has used this for political gain. And part of it was explained as being like the topic is complex. However, when I started thinking about that later, I was like, you know, I think part of the Trump phenomenon was his ability to take a, the complexity of things like trade deals and globalization and then tap into the economic and emotional pain that it causes people mm-hmm. by but scapegoat immigrants, which of course is incorrect. Mm-hmm. So when when I think about that devious choice, I realized that he didn't single out a person, but he did single out like a faceless group that many in the Midwest, where the devastation of course was caused, were familiar with. And so my question is sort of around what should that be what should that group be with monopolies? Because so often on the left we focus on like the Jeff Bezos, the Zuckerbergs. But that singularity kind of makes it easy for them to, like, for example, Bezos just step down and then be replaced with somebody with the same ideology and continue to run the business. So I feel we're kind of balanced. We're balancing being able to critique a group without demonizing, quote unquote, business as a whole, because, yeah, small business is at the heart of many American communities and the culture of America. It's built into our culture in terms of like the dream of entrepreneurship. Mm-hmm. And I know people use words like oligarchs and aristocrats, but to me, that doesn't cut to the, like, the emotional tenor that's required to galvanize people. I don't know. What are your thoughts? I First of all, I know that the Jason Johnsons of the world like to get on TV and say that people don't like words like oligarchy. And I, I think that there is a little bit of truth in that. But I think that part of why we get so much pushback against it is because there it, it does resonate. I think it's better than kind of a generic rich person. And I think that if it were conservatives, they would have spent the time teaching people what oligarchy or plutocracy means mm-hmm. instead of just poo-pooing and having these weird internal debates. Like to the earlier question of why the left can't do anything, this is why. Because you've got Jason <laughs> Johnson instead of saying, hey, Nina Turner, I agree with you that that's an oligarchy. Here's another word that works that, that our viewers might understand even better than that. And we can have a – you know, a, a mutually supportive yes and conversation about all the different words that describe this phenomenon we agree on. No, instead he decides he wants to beat up on a black woman because he's feeling insecure <laughs> in his feelings and try to like argue her down about the meaning of a word that everyone perfectly well understands who was on the stage that day. So, exactly. you know, so yes, I think that there are better words to use, but I think that to your point, there is some risk in like, saying it's too much Bezos' fault and not a broader phenomenon. But honestly, Bezos isn't stepping down, and I think it's fine to focus on these bad guys that people hate. I think, oh, yeah. You Don't know, have to I, be uh, exclusive. <laughs> yeah. But but to the broader point, like I, I, I do think that it's not an accident. People, Americans didn't wake up and say, oh, yes, trickle-down economics and all of these things, all of these messaging points we're fighting back against. Republicans did the work of teaching people what that stuff meant and believing that stuff. It's not just in the fabric of American life. And to the point with Matt Stoller, it's like Americans love competition. Use that. Mm-hmm. Just use that. Say, Americans understand corruption perfectly well. Corruption is not a word that needs a translation. And while when you go on TV and you say corruption, people like Joe Biden and Claire McCaskill go, oh, not me. How, how could you? You're making this moral claim about me. But I just got a new cat. I love ice cream. I've got sunflowers in my kitchen next to this 
Harlequin backsplash that for some reason Claire McCaskill is always sitting in front of. Like, <laughs> I, I, I couldn't possibly ever lie to you. I'm folksy and innocent. But like every normal person fully comprehends corruption, has a corrupt boss, a corrupt neighbor, a, a teacher that treated them unfairly. Like everybody understands what this is like in real life. And the poorer you are, the more that you felt exactly how the system is unfair. Yeah. And so the words are right there at our disposal and we should use them. And, but again, so I'm increasingly realizing this messaging stuff on the left. It's like, it's, there's no more messaging like analysis that really needs to be done. The point of the matter is everyone knows what to say and what works and they just won't say it. Yeah. I, I agree with you. Cause like at this point I'm like, just call them capitalist crooks because people under people on the right love the word capitalism. And then I said, they understand that crooks are bad and people on the left automatically tend to hate, you know, be anti-capitalist anyway. So just call them capitalist crooks. And well, I like the alliteration. Well, we've got Jeff Bezos. Uh, sorry, Jeff Bezos. LOL, that's for it. Um, <laughs> what's his name? Beto O'Rourke with that clumsy ass tweet. Did you guys see that tweet no, where he was like uh, calling Republican socialists? Oh. I'll show you. Because they, um, they, he texted me, you know, his people or whatever, uh, texted me asking for money and I responded with that tweet saying, no, I know you hate socialists. So I know you're not asking for money for me. What did he say? I'm going to find this tweet because That's it was so just crazy. a day or two ago. Or maybe I should. Oh, here he says, um, he says, Abbott is a corrupt socialist. So he, he understands. Bennett was obviously trying to do something here, right? Like he understands the corruption. He's like putting that in, but he's doing exactly what you said, Dave, but he's trying to, trying to use the negativity of the socialist able that the perceived mm. negativity, negativity at least to try to bring down a Republican. So he says he encouraged his corporate buddies to make obscene profits during the grid failure and force us to pay for their windfall, windfall and higher utility bills. He privatized the gains to a few and socialized the losses to every single rate payer in Texas. And all the socialists were quote tweeting this, like mm, the word you're looking for is capitalist. He is yeah. fully a capitalist. Like, what are you doing? And he was obviously trying to do this like socialism for the rich and, and rugged individualism for the poor thing. But like, fuck you, Beto. Like a socialist <laughs> can get away with that because we know that socialism is good and we want socialism for the poor. You're just being an asshat. Yeah. Like I'm definitely in the camp of leaning into the things that are unpopular messages because Trump told people to build a wall and literally when people got mad, he just repeated it. And this kind of goes right. to Rebecca's point for me because when Rebecca... I know it's unpopular, but I'm like, I'm actually not against people running in the Democratic Party because mm. I don't understand if Trump within a one-term cycle could completely hijack, introduce new people, and change the tenor of the Republican Party, why are we so easy? It goes back to why Republicans will do things that the left won't. Why are we so aversive to doing the same? I'm not being naive to all the structural barriers, but, and yes, there was some difference, but I'm like, I want us to win so that we can actually take it back to what the party should be. I don't want to surrender that over, but you know, people have different opinions and that's okay. Yeah, no, I'm with you. I'm with you, Jay. I, I, I'm with you. <laughs> <laughs> but yes, that part I thought was really interesting because I sounded like you had more thoughts to flesh out around that topic. So I wanted to ask you about it because it was on my heart. So thank you for answering. No, of course. And thank you as always for calling in. Absolutely. Uh, next up, we have Dave F. What is on your mind, Dave? Hello. Um, first of all, please don't be mean to me this time. Dave, uh, I would never. What did I do to you last time? I was the one talking about my Asian girlfriend and 
<laughs> well then. <laughs> but yeah, thanks. Dave thanks from Hawaii. I'm yeah. sorry. Yeah, thanks to you, I broke up with her though. So, stop. You're kidding, right? No, I'm serious. I said due to Brianna Joy Gray uh, <laughs> uh, relationship. But he's okay. looking for. You're obviously kidding, but still, <laughs> lol. I guess my, uh, <laughs> my thing, I guess, I feel like Americans kind of like, I don't know how widespread it is or just among people I know, but I feel like they're very indifferent on Monopoly sometimes and almost worship billionaires and stuff like that. Mm. And I was just wondering what you think of that. It is an interesting tension, right? Um <laughs> But I don't think it's quite as much of a tension as some people say, because when you look at the polls around stuff like uh, wealth tax, people want it. You know, you can say at the same time that Americans should be allowed to make a ton of money and it's, you know, the American dream. And that's the whole point of this country is that there's no limits and also say, oh, we're going to do a two cent tax on every dollar of wealth over five hundred billion dollars or whatever Elizabeth Warren's wealth tax policy was. And. <laughs> Even the most smooth of brains can figure out that that is not impeding anybody's ability to be obscenely wealthy, right? right? That that at the very least is perfectly fair and that billionaires should, quote, pay their fair share. I think that formulation uh, from Bernie is a really effective one. I, I do think that it's it's more effective than, you know, broadly tax the rich and make them pay. There's some of these kind of like very pitchforky cartoonish slogans that leftists like to use. And it's fun. And it's, I don't mean to, I'm not trying to criticize anybody, but in the broader political sphere, those, those kind of statements are easily kind of smeared as, Oh, you're doing a class war. And Republicans love that as they're doing a class war, they will <laughs> accuse you of doing a class war. And like that somehow is divisive and bad. There, what was the tweet that was going viral today? Um, Oh, you cannot – the guy – who was it that was tweeting, like, you cannot um, help the poor by demonizing the rich? And everyone was like, 100% you can. <laughs> and it was like a whole thread of, like, you cannot do this while doing this. And, like, down in the thread, like, after the top tweet was, like, you can't help the poor by hurting the rich, like, down down below, he's like, you cannot – you know, make equality by starting a class war. And it's like, my dude, your first tweet was a class war tweet. You're the one who came out front, like, strong talking about, you know, putting the pit, pitting the rich against the poor like that. Like, that was you. So um, I'm a little wary of saying things that just are, like, indiscriminately rabble-rousing. Ah, oh, I hurt the rich because I am poor and wasn't able to work hard and be smart enough to achieve as much as Jeff Bezos. Like, that's how they see the world. Right. But the idea that you need to pay your fair share you're using all of these workers that are helping you to get your wealth. You know, I built that, you know, Obama got into trouble by saying that they didn't build that, like just really own this idea that it's the people, it's the workers that actually enabled you to have this wealth. And if X number of your employees are on welfare and sleeping in their cars in the parking lot and all of the statistics that we know from companies like Walmart and Amazon, then like maybe you should do something. And I also think that people are really upset by the enormous growth in billionaire and millionaire wealth that is, well, billionaire, let's just focus on them for a second. Wealth that's happened during um, COVID. That that seems really remarkable to people. And even the most hardened capitalist is a little bit like, mm, how did this happen? And mm -hmm. why is it that so much, you know, the biggest, you know, that the CARES Act is the biggest upward transfer of wealth in American history? Like systemically, what's the problem there? What's going on there? 
right. What did um, and then another I like Elon Musk. Did you see that tweet? I mean, I sure you did. I I don't know, but that he tweeted against Bernie Sanders like a couple of months ago. I oh think. yeah, about like, are you still alive? Right. So. Sorry, <laughs> wrong button. I meant to go for you, dumb son of a bitch. But the moment's passed now. <laughs> but like, I don't know. I feel like a lot of people were like, were, were like happy. I'm not happy about it, but I don't know. They're just like, Elon Musk has like a cult following almost. So I don't know. He does. Here's the thing. How many millionaires do you think there are? Uh, a, a lot. In America. A lot? I don't know. Yes. Just throw out a number. A hundred thousand. There are 20.27 million millionaires. So here's the thing. I'm not saying everybody who likes an Elon Musk Musk tweet is a millionaire, but there are like a lot of very rich people in America. Like a lot. Mm. 20 million millionaires. There's only 330,000 Americans. That's a shit ton of money. 20 million millionaires. Right. That's huge. Mm. So, and there are a lot of people, you know, that's not even counting 500,000 heirs and, you know, a lot of people who see themselves very aspirationally close to Elon Musk. Uh, So, you know, he's going to have a certain amount of traction. There is a certain cult following. But, you know, if, if Elon Musk ran for office... He wouldn't get anywhere close to Bernie, and we have evidence of that in the form of Michael Bloomberg and how his campaign went. That's true. So I wouldn't be too pressed about it. All right. Thank you, Bree. Thank you, Dave. Say hi to your girlfriend for me. <laughs> Bye. <laughs> Bye. All right. Andre, unmute yourself and let me know what's on your mind. The unmute button is a little microphone guy in the bottom right-hand corner. Thank you. How of are course. you, Bri? I'm doing well. How are you? Pretty good. Really enjoy listening to you. Bring up some very interesting points. Thank um, you. I appreciate that. Yeah. Um, I was actually like listening, and as everyone was having this conversation, I was just kind of thinking about where we are in terms of being in the left. And I think our biggest issue right now is that we have too many smart people. And <laughs> honestly, like what I mean by that is like we're kind of captured by the problem of having um, too many people a part of like the intelligentsia, right? Like all these academics who represent us that have this need to be right. Whereas the right, they don't have that. Their leaders are more willing to actually just stoop to the level of the people that they lead. And they don't have this kind of air superiority over them, which I think hinders us because we can't find a unified message. We can't seem to agree on anything as a collective. Well, so, yes, sort of. I think that the right certainly embraces a kind of working class cosplay that the left is reluctant to do. I don't think it's authentic, like Tyson, uh, sorry, um, Tucker Carlson is a Tyson food heir that was a born millionaire. Right. But he's and he spent half of his career wearing a bow tie, which I don't know is exactly the uniform of the proletariat, but that's neither here nor there. <laughs> like I, I feel like he they are better at doing a kind of working class uh working class face. <laughs> I don't know well they also they but simplify yeah. their message though. That's the thing. I think that's like where we run into problems is that we have too many really smart people. Like all these kind of um, gold star 
kind of like they're very used to being the top of the, like the class kind of people that really have this need to be the smartest person in the room where they don't have that need. They don't have that obstacle of trying to be the best. They're the, they're the same way. Like Ted Cruz went to Harvard. Like right. they all, the, they have the same pedigree as the people on the right. It's not, it's not the actual substance behind them. They were all in the same class together at Harvard law. Right. It's just that the people on the right choose to present themselves differently than people on the left. And part of that is because the left base kind of authentically or because they've been trained not all of the left base i shouldn't say the base the left voting tier i i think you know because voters tend to be more affluent and more educated in those kinds of things have been trained to kind of respect science and respect authority and respect academia as an abstract quantity over authenticity and so then the politicians continue to lean into that and it's like the circular loop where it's like, we're, to be a, a liberal, you have to admit that you think that Fauci is king. And to right. not is to be anti-intellectual or an anti-fact, you know? Well, even aside from that, it's like we don't have a connecting, a connecting message, right? Like, I saw that as particularly with the last election, where we had such a rift between the people, the kind of people who would vote for a Pete Buttigieg or the kind of people who would vote for... Um, like an Elizabeth Warren and a person that would vote for Bernie. Like there were people within the Pete Buttigieg and Elizabeth Warren camp that were just like of this. I like the way they speak. I mm-hmm. like the fact that they are highly educated. Bernie is too loud. Even though we can all kind of agree that we have kind of an egalitarian slant and we want things to be better, the presentation doesn't look a certain way. It's not polished a certain way. So we all kind of like go into our own little corners and we can't figure out like who to follow behind. Whereas they don't have that problem on the right. Just as long as someone says a message and keeps harping on the message that they like, they'll follow behind them to the death, as we've seen with uh, the last president. I won't say But it's name. also, I, I gotta say like, there is a unity of interest on the right that just doesn't exist on the left. Like, I believe that there's a left, if there's a leftist that speaks in highfalutin language, but they can get on MSNBC and say a couple of things, people like them. I mean, look, I'm not going to pretend to be anybody's working class hero and people seem to like me. Okay. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. I don't don't necessarily think it's because people are put off by a certain kind of uh, pedigree or, and I'm, 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 there's people who are much better communicators than me. And obviously Bernie has a lot better life than me. So that's either, you know, there, but also like Bernie went to the university of Chicago and sometimes people try to make him into something. He's not exactly like, he's pretty academic. That's like one of the best top five schools in the country, but it's neither here nor there. Um, the the point is, I think that there is the the right, there is an alignment between their messaging and the the moneyed interest and a certain kind of uh, working class pantomime, like faux populist pantomime, that all is in concert the, that runs in concert with each other. The right. the left's problem, I, I don't think, is that people are like too buttoned up or have their hair slicked to the side or have too many degrees or, or whatever. Right. It's it, the problem with Pelosi isn't that she like presents as an aristocrat the problem is that she is an aristocrat and she has right. aristocratic interests and she sucks right you know well i mean brady you're like to what you just said though like you also present in a certain way that's palatable like you have an obama-esque relatability that oh, people Lord. like i'm not well i mean come on i mean dude what, <laughs> you, you did all the harvard jumps too so it's like again you have this palatability and it also helps that like the way that you present isn't intimidating in the way or even um 
it doesn't occupy a certain part of people's minds where they say like, all right, this is the elite. Like they don't look at you in that way. So you can kind of navigate those waters in a way that like, you know, uh, other people who are kind of, like you said, parted down the part to the slide slick hair, just like, you know, leaves a bad taste in your mouth. Pete Buttigieg. So you like, it won't apply to you in the same way that it would anybody else. And I think the, the biggest problem that we have is that we don't have enough people that are regular humans speaking to our side of it because it's flooded with all these elitists. And that's kind of the thing that we can't unify behind because unfortunately for us, the mass majority of people aren't of that group. Like we, we it, like there's nothing to really follow behind. I don't like, I think the average American doesn't care if uncle Joe says like, you know, all the right things. He is an elitist, even though he went to like Delaware state or wherever the nonsense school he went to, like he like sent all his kids to Penn. He is a millionaire. So no, like, like on a deeper level, we all know he's full of shit. We don't have enough like real talking people. And I think unfortunately that's where the other side will beat us every time. I don't, I don't know, Andre. I feel like this is all over the place because you and I might not like Joe Biden, but a lot of people who voted for Donald Trump because they found Hillary Clinton to be an elitist don't think Joe Biden is an elitist and do think right. he's approachable because, you know, he went to, I think it's, you know, the state school in Delaware and because he grew up, you know, as a lifeguard with the little black kids touching his <laughs> blonde black hairs and, you know, he has his little folksy routine that he does no. and he is, was like one of the poorest members of the Senate and all of that stuff. I mean, that does resonate with people. And, and frankly, it's true. You know, it might, it, I mean, that the, the fact of him not being as affluent as a lot of other people in the Senate, that is, that is in fact true. And his pedigree is more you know, it's less patrician than certain other people. And it is true that he experiences horrible tragedy that I wouldn't wish upon right. anybody. Like, right. they're, they're, that's the problem with this kind of identity politics, whether it's racial identity politics or class identity politics or kind of this experiential identity politics where I'm supposed to like Joe Biden because I have enormous empathy for the tragedy he experienced. That has nothing to do with whether or not I think he should be president. Mm. And that's why, you know, it, it, Bernie is an elitist or not an elitist, depending on whether you like Bernie. Biden is right. the same way. Ted Cruz is the same way. Donald Trump went to Wharton and has literally was known as the guy with the <laughs> golden toilet seat. Right. Announced his campaign coming down on a building named after him <laughs> <laughs> on Columbus Circle on a golden freaking escalator with his mo- his third millionaire model wife in very expensive clothes, very nicely appointed, I must say, <laughs> coming yeah. down the escalator next to him and like nobody calls him an elitist and it's so it's, it's so attenuated from reality. But I don't think the answer is like getting like the perfect puzzle piece person. Um, I, I do think that there is value in having like a version of Bernie who frankly is diverse. Younger? Younger? Well, younger and diverse. Oh, yeah. But not because of the right, not because of getting independents or conservatives to vote for him, but because it insulates that person against all the critiques from liberals. Right. Or, I mean, are we ever going to get to a point? I would love to see a politician that just says, so the fuck what? You think I'm X, Y, and Z, so what? But like, all right, I'm this, I'm that. You don't really have anything to stand on. Let's like focus on the issues. Because I think like there's always going to be a critique. There's nothing you can do about that. Like, I don't think there's been a more consistent politician than Bernie Sanders. But yeah, he got all these critiques. I wonder what would the world have looked like if he said like, all right, you think I'm a socialist? Cool. Next question. Let's, how are we going to feed these kids? How are we going to keep people off the street? I'm with like, you. Yeah, like, what happens after that? Because when we spend all this time trying to bait back and forth, oh, I'm not what you think I am. Who the fuck cares what you think I am? 
Like, I'm not here for you and your approval. So, like, can we actually find a person? I don't know what that looks like. Maybe that's Nina Turner or maybe that's Ben Jealous. I don't know. But can we get a person that just comes out here and says, I don't care what you think about me. I'm here to fight for these people and make their lives better. Or is that impossible in the capitalist system? I don't know. Andre, I dreamed a dream in time gone by. (laughs) (laughs) When hope was high and life worth living. (laughs) Oh, wow. You have another career ahead of you. Look at that. I do not. But, like, I I share that dream, man. Yeah. (laughs) You know? I just, I don't know. I'm just at a point, like, where as a voter... Uh, as like someone who has like, you know, deep roots in this country and I don't want to end up leaving. Like I'm a child of immigrants, but there are moments where I'm like, well, fuck all this. I'm about to leave, but no, I've spent too much time here. I've invested too much here. I own a home here. I'm not going anywhere, but it's just like, yeah. Oh my God. Talk about (laughs) golden handcuffs. Don't buy a house kids. It's a a trap, (laughs) but yeah, it's, it's just like, I don't know. I don't know where we're going to end up and I'm scared. Honestly, like I, I do fear, a lot of times, like, what is this going to look like five years? Like, I live in New York. I grew up in New York. And mm-hmm. when I started seeing people that I grew up with being, like, you know, Trump fanatics or people who are, like, anti-vaxxer fanatics and just, like, this is not the world that I grew up in. And if it can happen in this incredibly liberal area, where am I safe? Yeah. Yeah. Sorry, I didn't mean to bring down the vibe. <laughs> no, look, I know. People love to say things like, oh, New York is – no, like <laughs> – New York, as blue as it is, votes like 40% Republican. 40% Trump. You know, it's – and few few places in America are quite as homogenous as uh, the, you know, Steve Kornacki counter, vote counter, (laughs) what you think, you know. So I I hear your concern, um, and I hear that – I think a lot of this, like, compulsion like this attraction that i share in talking about messaging does have to do with the fact that we're all seeing the kind of the the spread of this new kind of what right populism around us we hear it in in people talking to us we see this compelling nugget like what terrifies me is when i watch fox news and i'm nodding along with a lot of it yeah you know like i i, I get why it's appealing like to be honest I mean, it's the same dynamic we always talk about, but I, I find it to be less frustrating. Not all of it. Like that Greg Gutman guy is like really on a whole other planet. Gutfeld. Gutfeld. Sorry. <laughs> I, I'm sorry. Like he, but the thing is even his show, it's like entertaining that yeah. format. They're in the round circle and the chairs. It feels kind of like politically incorrect used to be back in the day, you know, when they had the four chairs facing each other, Right, right. you know, they've got the girl in the skirt. And, you know, like, and like a football player or something thrown in there and it's all jokes and irreverence and they, they get to have a little bit of fun because they're not worried about being politically correct at all. And there's right. a certain freedom and joviality. And I'm like, shit, like, of course I'd rather watch this than Don Lemon. You know, I love Don Lemon when he gets drunk on New Year's, but otherwise he's a real <laughs> pill. You know? well, and they're just like uh, inauthenticity uh, to them. So like yeah. that, you just... As a, as a regular person, you can feel it. You can feel fakeness. Like, I don't yeah. think any of us, like, are as fooled as we think uh, or as they think we are. I think the unfortunate problem is that we have a celebrity worship. We have a capitalistic worship that we see people in certain positions and believe they have to be right, even though deep down inside we know they're full of shit. So I don't 
know exactly how we remedy that. And like you said, like the writer is very persuasive in their kind of like, you know, hats off, don't give a fuck kind of attitude. And even if it's fake or for nefarious means or, uh, you know, uh, goals, it, it, it comes down to, hey, even though I know that this person is an elite, and I deep down know that, like, if I wanted to go have a beer with Tucker Carlson, his security team would throw me on my ass. But at least he hates who I hate. At yeah. least he voices the shit that I want to say yes. out loud, but I'm afraid of losing my job. So it's cathartic. And I don't we don't have that on our end. Like, yes, right. independent media like yourself and like, you know, like a Jordan Sheridan or even like, yeah. you know, at times Young Turk, whatever. Like, yeah. we we have that. But in like in the mainstream, there's nobody speaking like a regular human being. They're all That's liars. so smart. At least he hates who I hate. Like, Because I'm sitting here thinking like, who does who does Anderson Cooper hate? Who does, <laughs> you know, who does, uh, what's her face? Nicole Wallace hate. Well, they hate us. That's the right. thing. That's the most, they hate us. <laughs> they hate the working class. They can't be... They, they 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 hate the fact that they got to tap dance and do the puppet dance to keep us all like calm while they have to act like they care about us. They would love to live on Elysium 2.0 without the rest of us if they could. Mm. But that's just not the reality of where they are right now. Trust like it's it's like I work in a uh, corporate and it's just interesting to see the levels of wealth as you move up and mm. just the way people talk. I mean, yeah, you've worked in corporate too, so it's mm-hmm. like you understand like the how far removed from like they just don't and these are people who are making like i mean to me a lot of money but in the grand scheme like you know people who make like their 300 400 grand a year Mm. but they're so far removed from reality i had this partner i maybe have mentioned her before but she used to accost me in the hallway i mean it was a small office there were only 12 attorneys she used to confront me in the hallway and ask me constantly if i had seen hamilton yet and also (laughs) uh whatever cynthia arriva was in on broadway at the time because I, because I was the only black person in the office, oh, the only black course. attorney in the office, and she was breathlessly like, oh, I, I, "Don't you just love Cynthia Arriva? I took my kids to see her for the fourth time, and we went backstage, and she's always just so nice to the girls, and she remembered her name, and she was like Jessica, and Jessica was like, "Hey, Cynthia," and like you just have to go. She kept telling me that I needed to go see Hamilton, and the tickets were like a thousand dollars. I was like. Ma'am, do you know how much you paid me? Like, I'm not gonna go waste a thousand dollars on Hamilton. If anything, you know, I'm gonna invest in some luxury goods that last me. <laughs> yeah. Like, we had a partner who has a house in New York City, and you understand how expensive real estate is in New York. She has an actual house, like, like a house by the East Village, probably priced at like something insane, like eight million dollars. Yeah, and access all to like you know come over and like. And I'm, like, sitting here worried, like, oh, I don't know, like, we'll be distanced enough. You come into this place, it's like, oh, yeah, we'll definitely be distanced enough. This is, like, why they can say things like, oh, I hate being at home so much. I feel like, I don't know, I'm just, like, cooped up. I'm like, I would, if I lived in a place like this, I would never leave. What are you talking about? Yeah, the gap, and I know nobody wants to hear this, and so I'm going <laughs> to keep this very brief. But there's a significant gap between, you know, the... The starting salary for um, – this is not a state secret. It's on the internet. The starting yeah. salary for um, first-year associates in big law when I started – when I got out of law school in 2011 was $160,000 a year, okay? And that's obviously three times as much as the average American income, and it's a yep. heck of a lot of money. It's different depending on what city you're in, but in New York, an expensive city, it's $160,000 a year. It's 206 you- now. Oh, well, yeah. And my, that, the law firm careers keep up with the, the pace of inflation. Everybody else is still fucked, I guess. Yeah. But like, so that 
that feels like a lot. You're graduating. You're feeling really good about yourself, right? Now, of course, you have also $180,000 of student debt. That's <laughs> less good, okay? Yeah. And you're having to live in New York, so you're paying at least $2,000 for rent, probably more. Oh, like, where Definitely do you live? More. It's definitely like three now. I mean, like, with a roommate, I just was trying to do some calculations. Because <laughs> yeah. people have a roommate. If you're living yeah. alone, back then, at least, I would say, you could maybe find a one-bedroom in Brooklyn or Harlem for, like, 22, maybe, yeah, yeah. right that's when I graduated. Right. Yeah. But that's it. Okay. Um, yeah. Okay. So, plus, now you're being invited out to these partner events and you're realizing there's a huge gap between you feeling good about yourself earning $160,000 a year and these partners who are making enough to be able to afford a $10 million apartment, yep. to your point. Because yep. that's that's how much any apartment costs in Manhattan that has, like, three bedrooms in it. <laughs> like, yep. And you're, you're going to these events and you're realizing, okay, there's these increased – you thought your hoops were over, but there's more hoops. Oh, yeah. And their hoop – very few people get into, but when you make partner an equity partner and you're now getting a share of the business, like that's why everyone is so cutthroat and you're realizing the race has just begun. Yeah. But if you fall off, what you going to do? Cause you can stop, you can leave the firm and stop earning that $160,000 a year, but those $2,300 loan payments aren't going anywhere. Well, even after you pay the loans, um, you still, there's a life that you've built. And I think that's another thing that people yeah. really like underestimate is golden handcuff. Yeah. Oh yeah. It is, it's, it's a real thing. Cause like, I, I've like, I mean, like I'm in public accounting, so it's a little bit different, but um, it's just, even in the time that I've been there, cause I used to work like, you know, crappy jobs, like H and R block and stuff like that before I came to the firm. And just like looking at my life between that, like living in and being in a, a crappy area in Yonkers, New York, which is hood as hell. And then like, you know, moving further up in the West. Do Yonkers. <laughs> I'm just saying it's, it's, my mom lives up near. My mom's in um in um, Mount Vernon East. Oh, okay. Yeah, <laughs> my brother live over there off of Yonkers. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. I yeah. So it's but it's just like you you live in you like I you know like I've I've seen people get robbed outside. No one cares. Mm-hmm. It's a completely different you know atmosphere. And then you move on up, and I'm like you know right next to the Scarsdale Country Club right now. Mm-hmm. Like, and it's just like. I don't want to go back further south. <laughs> so what do yeah. I do to maintain that level for the yeah. rest of my life? You know, and that's a hamster wheel that I don't know how you get off once you're on. Yeah. I mean, people ask me why I didn't move back to New York and it's like, I don't know. I don't want to go back and live in a less nice place than I lived when I was 27. Facts. <laughs> Facts. <laughs> it's a little depressing. It's like, oh, well, I'm, if I'm in a studio in DC and at least I have a, wa- a dishwasher, that makes me feel a little like I haven't regressed. <laughs> yeah. Look, it's, it's very real, and I don't think people talk enough about that because it's not just a simple like, "Hey, how do I?" Because like in 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 my line of work, it's like a lot of people just kind of stay within uh, big four accounting until they leverage into uh, like you know private equity or um, some other kind of like private industry, and they do it basically basically because you start getting that little taste of what life looks like, and like to connect it back to our original like conversation, it's like. Once you're on that track, right, and you become the representative of, let's say, like, you know, the broader left, and you're living this life, how can you connect with people who don't live like you do? Yeah. I mean, I'm Andre, I'm going to have to get, like, in this before we both get dragged for Phil for our bourgeois sensibility. <laughs> and it's true. Like, drag me. Like, it me. Like, that's me. Drag me for Phil. I get it. I fully, I will not argue with you. I Like, this is not relatable. I get it. Yeah. Um, but 
you know, it is, you know, people, people are on their journeys and it is true. And I don't know, man, sometimes I think the most selfish version of events is like people who are like upwardly mobile, middle class, right? They, they may not care personally, but like, they want to not feel guilty. <laughs> yeah. So oh, at yeah. the very least it's like, oh, like if I, am I, if I succeed at capitalism and get my little pot of gold, I don't want to have to like feel so guilty about it. So let's at least bring up the floor a little bit. So yeah. I, <laughs> yeah. so yeah. I can enjoy my riches. Like on some level, if that's the pitch that has to be made, then fine. Cause honestly, I find it to be, it's not enjoyable. Like it's or, not enjoyable. Having or to, like, we're honest with what capitalism is. And we just start like, you know, bribing our own people. I've, I've thought about that a lot. It's like, look, this is the game. Like that, like the reason why we're in this problem is because other interests are willing to bribe their candidates. So let's start bribing people. Let's we don't have up. enough money. They have um, so much more money than us. Yeah, we don't have we don't have more money, but we do have enough money. There's a difference. I think we do have enough money to bribe like the the right people. And like I know because we're dealing with other. <laughs> it's killing me. Like whom? Like we don't we have enough money to to bribe Pfizer. We have sure, enough I'm money to like. Pfizer. I'm not talking about Pfizer. I'm talking about having the or, right or more money than Pfizer to bribe the politicians. Well, it's kind of like I mean, like not to even get on the cryptocurrency slant, but just like to see like how many people are willing to kind of like put their money into one entity to make something so like incredibly valuable, like a Bitcoin. It comes from crowdsourcing, right? Like, and I'm not talking but about isn't the that numbers. a Ponzi scheme. Isn't that why everyone's saying that um, Jimmy Fallon and them have all been posting their their monkeys or whatever because the, it isn't worth anything unless everybody else buys in and they're going to cash out the second all of the plebes go ahead and buy a monkey Ooh, like like now we're gonna get into the diamond water paradigm from economics 101 like i did not take economics well just the idea that a bottle of diamonds is worth more than a bottle of water and why is that like what's oh. actually more like has more utility to you mm-hmm. so it's like value intrinsically or extrinsically is like you know based on uh the amount of utility that you can get from it so yes like i agree that everything's a ponzi scheme like you know legal tender like why is a dollar worth a dollar because we said it is that's it that's all there is behind it nothing else like so it's like if somebody's willing to pay fifty thousand dollars for an nft then it's worth fifty thousand dollars there's no way of arguing that so like but so like to my point about like the bitcoin stuff it's just like it came about because a collective said hey we agreed we all agreed to make this more valuable so why can't we as a collective agree to make someone's life so like i don't know like whatever the number is 10 million 20 million dollars we put you so far above that you're out of the realm of being corrupted because you have everything you're ever going to need we've but given you enough- but, but that doesn't seem to be working you know people like nancy pelosi and and uh joe manchin are so far beyond human need and want well the where do they get their money from that's why they're like that's why they, they get it from with- insider trading exactly but you're right but they get it from insider trading and they get it also and- from these from, kickbacks and stuff. I've been watching the Sopranos. So. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. So they get it from donations and they get it from people who are of the elite, the people they hang around. What does it look like when you know that your $10 million is coming from a crowdsourcing of like regular people? What but does no, that look I, like? I, but, but Andre, I, I don't, I don't, I don't think they're getting it from donations. Nancy Pelosi didn't go from being worth $10 million to $80 million or whatever the gap was in 10 years because she like was raising money from her campaign funds and then pocketing the money. Like that's not how it's working. She was able to literally invest her own, you know, she comes from a rich millionaire family already, invest her money 
advantageously in the stock market. They're able to get all kinds of backroom deals and kickbacks and, and, and negotiate with, you know, I don't know if you watch Sopranos, but like full on mafia deals and all these <laughs> kinds of things. Right. You know, all of them are gangsters. The Kennedys, all of them were gangsters and mafiosos and doing this illegal shit all the time. And that's how they earn money. And the stuff with, with, with Joe Manchin, he can't be bought, not because he's like an ideological zealot that just, you know, hates the Democratic Party. It's no, because there's stuff going on and gains to trade that are beyond the realms of our of our understanding. And he's going to be fine. There's there's more money. At a certain point, these people cannot be bought off. Jeff Bezos has more money than any living person on planet Earth has ever had. Except for Elon. And, <laughs> is Elon ahead of him now? Yeah, yeah, he's number one. Fine, after. Elon, whatever. Yeah. And they could obviously sit down and say, I'm going to stop. Or say every single day, I'm going to give away a million dollars. They could do any number of things that would, frankly, get the media off their back and cost right. them very little in, in the grand scheme of things. And they don't do it. And it's not because – it's not like if we had – how much money does Elon Musk have now? Like $300, million, $300 billion, something like that? If, if, we, if we print a $500 billion coin and say cease and desist, you know, nationalize Amazon, whatever – it's not gonna. It's not gonna change their minds about anything. It's just not what that's about anymore. It's it's interest. They have a longer term. All of these all of these moneyed interests have a longer term game plan. Right. And we do. And that's what I'm saying about all the stuff about the right wing's messaging being so coherent and stuff. It's because they have like a coherent ideology. Yeah. I'm all here. the people who need to be on their side, from the media to the lobbyists to to every every actor, they all have the same investment in it. They, right, there's right. complete simpatico. It makes total sense. I go up to a rich person and say, trickle down economics is great. We should lower taxes on the rich. All of that is ideologically consistent. It makes it make sense. I go to a rich liberal like Bradley Whitford, and all I have is, oh, but don't you care about poor people? Don't you care about <laughs> black people? Don't you care about immigrants? Don't you care about the gays? Like that's the only pitch there is. That's why they've defaulted to identity politics. It's the only thing to make a rich that makes sense for why a rich person would be a Democrat. Well, I mean, now there's like, I mean, like to the Amazon point, there uh, there's a investor Nick Hanauer. Um, I think he's out of Seattle. Uh, he runs Pitchfork Economics, great podcast. But um, like he talks about that. He's a class trader. Like he's a billionaire. He he was an early investor. And Amazon, and I think there are more people like that than we recognize. It's just they don't get the kind of attention. I just kind of wish that capital that they have would shift towards, all right, we're going to buy our politicians too. Because I think most of his work or people of that ilk, they're trying to, like, you know, stabilize the system. And, like, I think we just have to come to the realization that the system is completely, is completely fucked and this is the wild, wild west. Guns up. I think that there's a bidding war for politicians that yeah. more money will just be invested by the other people because there's more of them and they have more money. But as Ryan Grimm says in the cover of his latest book, they've got money, we've got people. And I do think that those billionaire dollars can do a lot in terms of setting up a left media infrastructure that can start to mobilize the people to definitely not storm the Capitol, <laughs> but do some other kinds of actions that would be, you know, really strike meaningful political fear in the hearts of the people who need to be more responsive to the community. So I hear you, Andre. Um, I'm going to try to wrap this up at two hours today. So I'm going to move on to the rest of the queue, but I really enjoy chatting with you today. Yeah. Thanks a lot, Brie. Have a good one. You too. All right, Carol, welcome back. My programming friend. Right? <laughs> uh, yeah. Yeah. That, that's what I do for a living. <laughs> so what's on uh, your mind? Not to, uh, not to pigeonhole you. You can talk about it. Yeah. Yeah. No, no, no. I, um, I, I, 
I'm going to try to be brief, brief, but um, I have kind of three points to make. Uh, first, I want to disagree with the caller who was just like, hey, wouldn't it be better to have just a few very large companies? And um, I won't repeat his whole logic for that, but I just think that there, um, there's something really wrong with a world where uh, we can travel halfway around the world and then still end up shopping in a West Elm. Uh, just as a very like we we are trending very strongly towards a monoculture as all these very very large co- corporations kind of standardize everything and I think we miss out on a lot of uh, really interesting things that come from you know the natural diversity of humanity if we allow that to be uh, the direction that we continue in mm-hmm. um, so that's just the first uh, comment the second is kind of around. This question, and I'll just give a little bit of background, which is uh, I started in politics as somebody who, like, I'm Black, so I was nominally uh, a Democrat. I ended up Mm -hmm. moving right because, you know, you look around and you're like, okay, well, we've been voting for Democrats and nothing's changed, so maybe this other side has something interesting Mm -hmm. to say. And then as (laughs) the Republican Party kind of took the mask off, like, completely for me with uh, electing Trump, I was like, oh, okay, uh, this doesn't work. And so I find myself where I am now, which is that I am, I agree with a lot of the left's goals, but I'm very ambivalent about a lot of the um, the methods and paths for achieving them. Um, and I did want to say that part of that is that um, some of the stuff that I really do want to hang on to is... Uh, like I always say that the flip side of individual personal responsibility is individual agency and that sense of being able to not necessarily overcome an entire system, which I don't think is possible, but being able to actually make some changes as an individual in my life around things that I want to achieve um, and things that I might want to achieve for other people is something that I think the left really has a problem with um, generally because you're looking for community uh, wide uh, solutions and kind of movement building and people really, because the, the, uh, the, the propaganda from the right is so strong and their messaging is so strong. I think there's a lot of people on the left who, who are very hesitant to give into any message that says like you as an individual can do certain things. And so what's happening on the right mm. I kind of disagree that it is just like they have a singular message. I think you have a lot of people who, of course, have more access to money, but they also have access to uh, they they also are individually motivated and feel like they have individual agency. And so what happens is they're, you, they that side has a lot more people who are willing to kind of try different things and start little organizations and then have those things actually be considered and it, my sense having, you know, as a more of a newcomer to the, the left is that people are very quick. It, like if you're not talking organizing with unions and mm. and if you're not talking about electoral politics, people are like, we don't want to hear it. You can't mm. stop racism or change the world with an app. You, mm. And I'm like, well, maybe not, but we do need tools mm-hmm. <laughs> in the meantime. And so... Mm. Um, that is kind of my second point. And if you wanted to kind of comment on yeah, that. Carol said yeah, Carol said personal responsibility. 
<laughs> Carol no. said we need some of that bootstrap energy on the left. What are you lazy bums doing? God helps those who help themselves. <laughs> <laughs> it is not that extreme, but it's definitely, I do think it's a sense, like when I hear people talk, it's very like, oh, you know, this person, we're waiting on this person to show up. And, you know, if there was somebody I could get behind and if there was such and such, and yeah. there's just not as much energy around saying like, why don't we um, develop a model of, you know, small businesses in my area? Like m- maybe I can build a kind of coalition or like, th- I don't, I don't know different ideas um, mm-hmm. off the top of my head, but you just don't see that kind of incubation happening regularly <laughs> um, that gets people uh, kind of motivated to say like, oh, they've tried this solution and it has had some, some effectiveness. And so now we want to expand it. Um yeah, I'm kind of with you, Carol. Like, I, I am, I'm obviously joking. I don't think you're saying like personal yeah. responsibility, but I do think that sometimes the, the understanding of systemic issues, the fact that they are systemic and the aversion to a kind of bootstrapping ideology can make efforts that are somewhat individualistic or like people just trying things get written off as just not the solution categorically. Right. (laughs) And there's not this like, let many flowers bloom attitude. You know, like this is the thing, I think I alluded to this earlier. It does feel like if somebody on the right does something that someone else on the right disagrees with, they'll just like not talk about it. Yeah. Let it, let it go. Like, okay, (laughs) I don't think it's going to work, but just go ahead and knock your socks off. Whereas the left is like, I don't like you anymore because, you know, you supported force the vote and yeah. it was a stupid plan and therefore you're an idiot. And despite the fact that you have a following and a lot of people were excited mm-hmm. about this, I'm just going to like smear you for the rest of my life. Mm-hmm. Like, Crossed oh, off I mean, the list. Like, we don't okay. listen to you no more. <laughs> right. <laughs> and it's ridiculous. You could just like not weigh in. I, I've right. tweeted this before, but I wake up every single day and I could be choosing violence because there's some dumb <laughs> stuff. Going across my timeline, I got to say. And I'm not saying I'm always rising above it, but like nine times out of 10, I'm just like, log off. I'm just not going to comment that or I'll just like DM the stupid tweet to a friend. I'm like, this is stupid. <laughs> and I keep it to myself. Because it's I not worth it. let someone know. Right. Like that person who said it is an ally or could be an ally. We agree on 90% of things, even if we disagree about this one stupid thing. And it is what it is. You know, I'm sitting around here. I'm watching Glenn Greenwald and Ryan, uh, you know, Ryan uh, Grimm and Nathan Robinson and all my friends go at each other's necks 100% of the time. <laughs> and sometimes I think one is stupid and the other one is stupid and this one is stupid and that one is stupid. Whatever. Like, it's just not relevant to weigh in because I value each of them for different reasons, even though I very publicly disagree with a lot of them. <laughs> yeah. So. You know, I just, so I, I think that you're right. I think that there is this like self-defeating impulse on the left to tear stuff down and to not, and, and pointedly to your point, to not be supportive of innovation for lack of a better mm-hmm. word. Nobody is trying to hear that word that is associated with tech and startups, the world right. that I come from. And like, we have really run away a lot of people who are in that space. It, it, I have a lot to say on that, but um, well, speak so, on it, Carol, tell well, us <laughs> what's going on. Well, I, uh, I, I don't have a lot to say at this moment, but because <laughs> I want to get to my other point. But, sure. But, go ahead. I'm sorry. Definitely. I, there, there is a ho- lot of hostility to, towards 
the industry generally. And I think there's, there are really good people who are trying to do some interesting things in the space. Um, so the last thing that I wanted to talk about is actually related to this episode, which is that, <laughs> so I know when towards the end, you guys were talking about businesses and basically a variation of this topic. And, mm-hmm. um, I just kind of wanted to say that if you do get Richard Wolf on again, one of the things that has been really frustrating for me as somebody who is in startup world doing technological things is I see the information. So he has this, uh, uh, the Democracy at Work Institute, right? Mm-hmm. And I was looking for information because I'm like, well, if I can't do a full on worker co-op, then uh, what kind of pieces would I bring on and what is the process for that? And I realized that that organization is actually much more focused on uh, conversion. So existing businesses where the the, um, boss is retiring and has no one to pass their business on to. And they say, okay, we're going to convert that to to a worker co-op. But there's not a lot of information about how to start that from scratch. And I Mm -hmm. do... The, the things that I look into, like, I feel like a lot of times when I'm talking to progressives and people on the left, I'm like, oh, you guys, just, like, nobody here is trying to start a business or has any idea what this mm-hmm. is like, because Guilty. it just really <laughs> <I'm> struggling. <laughs> It really feels very impractical. Like the idea of being able to start a co-op from the very beginning is really difficult when you're talking about an idea that's very nascent and not completely formed, having a group of people try and choose the direction. And like, there's a lot of very key things that happen early on. You're not going to be able to fundraise if you tell most investors that you are um, looking for that kind of setup because they're not going to like, they're not going to try want to hear that. Mm-hmm. Um, it, but then at the same time, there's not really a pool of investors or money being put together so that people who want to start businesses with better. Um, ideas, yeah. 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 Can really have a space. And from what I've seen, most of the people who do have the money are liberals. Right. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. And I don't, and to, to your point about Ryan's, Grimm's book, I've always been really frustrated with that title of, you know, they have money, we've got people, because it kind of assumes that we're always going to be in a position of not having money. And it absolves us of having to come up with ways to raise money and pool money on our side. Like, we don't even try to think about, okay, what's a way that we could take the funds that we have and funnel it not towards necessarily just candidates who may or may not win in a certain cycle, but how do we funnel our money in ways where maybe we put together a council of people who are vetting ideas and choosing ideas, like nothing. (laughs) And so I'm like, well, I'm going to be in this position of not having money or power because we still live in a capitalist system and i feel like people are so anti-capitalist sometimes that we forget that we still live in a system that requires money to do things but that's my third point um i i i look i was gonna disagree with you because i'm like well the people the idea of we got people is all part it's partly a fundraising thing right but then Mm -hmm. you said four candidates and like i'm like yes we only really think about doing those big crowds crowdsourcing money drives in electoral context. And I've said this on the show and I'll say it again. When the organizers do come on and talk about how important organizing is and these workers are, you know, putting themselves in the line and going on strike, I am curious why it doesn't seem like there's a left push for us to like 
donate those $27 to a strike fund. Like, yeah, like, tell me what to do. Like, I'm like, you're, you are an organizer. You're sitting here on the show explaining to me how important it is. And you haven't asked for my money once. Mm-hmm. And you'll, you'll tell me, like, participate. I'm like, you're, you're telling my listeners, you know, however many thousands of you there are, that they should get on a plane and go to Best Summer Alabama. Well, like, I, I, God bless. I, I hope that some of you are going to be able to do that. But realistically, like, I don't, I don't mean to cut anybody off at the knees because, look, there are people who do that and, like, truly, God bless them. And so many people from Socialist Alternative went down there and, like, Lord's work, praise be. But, like, can we just be realistic for one second? Like, even if you convert ten, some magical 10% of the audience, which is never going to happen, more like 0.1% of the audience to actually doing something like that, you've got probably another – 23% who might be very willing to give you 10 Just bucks. chip in a little bit of money. Yep. You know, I, 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 I would tell people like people you're subscribing $5 a month for this show. You know, it, I, I'm going to do next month. I'm going to do a $1, $1 subscription fee. Give the other $4 to these people in this, for this cause, you know, like I, I'm happy to do that, but no one even asks or thinks that way. Mm-hmm. So maybe know, the hundred people on this call, somebody will say, you know what? I have some individual agency and I got a friend who knows how to code <laughs> and I can come up with, we can get together and we can create that act blue alternative Yes, that requires some coders and people in tech who have like future, like, that's the other thing that I see a lot is that I do think that people on the left are very focused on historical things that worked very much uh but i find that there's not a lot like I, people are not sci-fi people <laughs> on the left for the most part i, see, um, I know you are i'm on that path oh shit that's the wrong button. i know you are star trek but my <laughs> it's very i feel like there's a lot of people who are very much like no, we don't do that sci-fi stuff. We are like, we do historical analysis and unions have worked in the past. That's what we're going to do in the future. Uh, That's the playbook. That's what we're going to run. And I just, we got to put, leave some space for that innovation, like you said. But um, yeah, at this this point, I'm going to be repeating myself. No, no, this is interesting. (laughs) I'm going to think about how to do an episode because to me, like when I talk to people, I'm so new to politics, you know, that nugget um, from Jessica, you know, early on about the act blue being such an obstacle. It's like mm-hmm. th- that to me is like that I can, gl- that's a problem that can be solved. I'm like mm-hmm. so excited to hear that. Not because I want to hear that there's an obstacle, but like that is something concrete to focus on mm-hmm. instead of all these people who come on and kind of abstractly say, it's hard to do this and it's hard to do that. Like, okay, here's a problem. I want to know about some of the history of act blue. How did it come to be that everyone's using this one vehicle? What would it take to move off of it? And I would love to talk to an organizer, someone maybe like Claire Sandberg who worked for the Bernie campaign who did the, what do they, what do they call it? Constituency organizing program, some word like that. I'm sorry. I forget what it was called. Girl, but, I don't know. <laughs> but who was in charge of like the Bernie app and all those things and to talk through like, well, how effective was that? And mm-hmm. how can we get off these platforms and what other innovations would be helpful to you? Because part of why Bernie did have that, that little bit of an edge was that he did have that like relational organizing apparatus where everyone mm-hmm. could feel like they could be an organizer on their phone and they weren't just out in the world knocking on doors without any kind of infrastructure. So I like the way you think, Carol. I appreciate your commentary <laughs> and hopefully we can get on this app game soon. Yeah. Thank you. Um, love talking to you and thanks again for having me on the show. Have a good night. Yeah, of course. Have a good night. All right, Eric, you're the next caller. Do not be smirch. Sci-fi. Star Trek can't take it anymore. 
How you doing, Bree? I'm doing well. Look, I had a long conversation with my brother a couple of days ago, you know, the OG Star Trek fan in the family. And he was, we were lamenting that, like, we were like the biggest Trekkies, and we have not been watching these new series. Discovery, I couldn't even get through the first season, even though there was like a black female lead, and I like um, uh, Shanika Green, I think her name is. I like her and other stuff. I couldn't do it. And then Picard, I'm like, Picard, Jean-Luc is back, right? Like, that's my guy. And Jerry Ryan's back on that one, you know, Seven of Nine from Deep Space Nine. All these people are back. I should be geeked out. I couldn't make myself do it, even though we know that my consumption habits in COVID are borderline unhealthy. But, you know, you didn't come here to talk about Star Trek with me. You don't give a shit. So tell me, Eric. <laughs> I, have, I haven't watched of a Star Trek, to be honest. I know. It's fine. I'm going to stop forcing this down your throat. Tell me what's on your mind. Um, actually, two things. And, well, one, um, thought, what do you think about the Green Party? Um, particularly, um, given that the eco-socialists have the majority. And what I said was, and I think I said in your comment section for, um, Paula Jean's video that you interviewed her in. And, and I said, like, why not just, as an anti-capitalist left, just, make the eco-socialists a supermajority in the Greens and kind of have a, like, force the vote type of thing within the Greens. Wait, so back up. I'm sorry, sorry. Help me understand. You you want the left to basically just take over the Green Party? I mean, as... I mean, yeah, as a... Because we know that's, like, a lot of the issues, like, be like, oh, well, the Greens, the Greens are old, the Greens have flaws, all this stuff. It's like, okay, just we can make the eco-socialists a supermajority and just overtake them and be but like... my understanding of the critique of the Green Party is not that they're substantively any different than the left, right? Like uh, um, when Jill Stein was on the on the podcast, she made this point that like, I think there's a little bit of resentment that there are all these people trying to make new parties that are like left parties when she's like, their platforms are identical to the Green Party platform. Bernie stole so much from the Green Party platform, the Green New Deal, all of that was like a, a Green Party platform plank that got lifted without any credit. And that the issue with the Green Party isn't substantive, you know, in terms of its policy, but it, it's the branding issue. So part of it is that maybe you have some critiques about how it's run and stuff and the takeover would maybe remedy some of that. But that fundamentally, MPP says this all the time, it's that people have their associations that the Green Party is like an exclusively environmental party and doesn't isn't able to deal with all these other things that people care about. But that's not even true when you see, like, when I saw Howie's plan. I'm like, right, that, but like, it's yeah, not it's that just it's like, true, but it's, it's that like, bro, it's just, what people think. And that's why MPP has said, okay, I'm not going to waste time trying to rehabilitate people's public image of the green, especially since it's, like, kind of built into the name that's very difficult to wrangle out of people's brains that we're just going to do something new. I mean, rightly or wrongly, that's the, that's the objection to the Green Party. Yeah, it, it's just, it's... I don't know, to me it's just weird when you already have something established and it's I'm like they barely <laughs> shit. You see the legal shit they go through. Yeah. Getting knocked off ballots and shit like that. I'm like, bro, you don't think that's gonna happen to people's? I mean, that's, yeah, I mean it is an interesting question. I mean, I wonder if the Green Party has ever been open to their own rebrand and to say, you know, okay, we're gonna stop being called the Green Party, but we're still the same thing. We have the infrastructure in place, but we're just gonna call ourselves the People's Party or whatever people like better. And, you know, pick pick a logo that's something closer to red and blue and seems more political. <laughs> Purple, I don't know. 
and push us forward. I don't know. Oh gosh, here I go forward. Our country is ridiculous. <laughs> I don't know. Like I, I said this to MPP when they were um, doing their first live stream uh, last summer, no, summer 2020. Oh my God. I can't believe that's going to be like two years ago um, where, you know, I was like very excited. I watched the live stream. Like I, you know, I was, I talked to Nick Branagh a little in the lead up to it and tried to help him like do some guest pick, you know, guest selection, stuff like that. But I also was like, I, I'm not, I want to be helpful and I don't want to be overly critical, but I don't know about this logo. <laughs> I don't know about this clip art looking logo. Like this is not inspiring confidence. And like, I think it's worthwhile to invest in image and stuff so that people can take you seriously. And, and he was open to that. You know, I think that, you know, but I, I, I think that I don't want to be like, I know I'm out here talking about innovation and law firms and tickets to Hamilton. And I know that I'm being the worst right now, but I do think that that kind of branding stuff inspires confidence in people in a way that's meaningful in this context. Yeah. I just wish it wasn't so brand driven. It's, it's like, this is, we're talking about like serious policy shit. We're not talking about like, like your next pair of like shoes or like your outfit or whatever. It's, it's aggravating along those lines. I, I hear you, but it's also human nature that I think people like a winner. I know that sounds like some terrible Sandlot shit. Like that's like big bully. That's, that's some stuff. like that's some that's some real life survival instinct shit. But it, it is what it is. I mean, look at how so many cohorts of the left, like the kind of Chapo left, has gone like completely doom or almost embarrassed that they ever believed that Bernie could win. Like you can feel the shame emanating off that quadrant of the left. Because they just, they liked the idea of finally being on a winning team. And now they're just like humiliated and they're like retreated to like a, a hole, like a sandworm. You know what I mean? And and meanwhile, I mean, it's, it takes a lot to keep, to, to, to lose and keep on trucking. And then you've got these Trump type figures who, even though they are colossal losers, brand themselves as winners. And people like that winner energy. It's just like, that. everybody really should have been done when like, Barack Obama makes a phone call and all these motherfuckers drop out and it's like, what the fuck? <laughs> like, damn. And then Elizabeth Warren stays in the race and then Bernie's screwed there. It's like, the fuck? Well, yes. And, I agree. I agree. It was and, the worst. <laughs> and that's, that's kind of why I'm like, yeah, it's official. Just be done with this. Done with this Democratic Party. Be done. But don't uh, you, what do you, what do you say to, you know, uh, Rebecca Parsons, you know, uh, uh, statements early on that there are real structural barriers. Sorry, I keep knocking this thing. Yeah. There are real structural barriers afoot. And you can sit here and say, like, what are you going to do? What are you going to do, Eric? Would you support Nina Turner and her, assuming that you lived in in her district, would you support her running on the Democratic ticket for Ohio's, uh, what is it, 11th district? Honestly, Given this, I know I'm I'm a little bit aware of the situation with um, um, Ohio, like, thanks to Jordan. Um, mm-hmm. And I'd have to sit down and really think about that thing. Because it, it's like, I don't want to give this party consent with my vote. And but at the same time, like... Chantel Brown is... Democrat yeah, I, and she's in there see, and that's the alternative. Is, is see this is this is the situation and actually that was gonna piggyback on my next thing. Um and mainly talking about us as black people. <sighs> That'll be fun. Um but yeah, it's just like 
this whole it's, it goes back to that lesser two evils, and it's just. Mm-hmm. But what? I mean, yes and no, right? Because there's a world where you're saying, you know, I, I'm not asking you to suck it up and vote for a candidate that's substantively bad, because it's better than an even worse candidate. You're but saying you- I will vote for a candidate that is substantively good, but simply is running on a ballot line for convenience convenience and you can believe or not believe that they're going to act with integrity when they get into office regardless of whether or not they run as an independent or run as a democrat but i can't help in the back of my mind saying well damn this isn't good enough either like deep down i'm like shit (laughs) you know it's just like i don't feel like this is this is like do i do you elect someone that you know really ain't really ain't worth a penny in Chantel brown Mm-hmm. Or do you elect someone who's kind who uh you're hoping that she isn't gonna get influenced by the Democratic Party? You're hoping and I'm just like what type of choice is there? <laughs> like I mean the way I, I, to I, me I, the I, ideal situ- the ideal situation is okay, if if candidates want to run as Democrats, God bless them. And that same race, if a candidate, if people feel like there should be an independent candidate, let them run in there too, and let's see what happens. Let's so, see what let's see what happens. This this is what makes me like. Um, I don't know if you heard this from Nader. Um, this is what makes me like Ralph, Ralph Nader's idea of having like a uh, on the ballot like um, a none of the above option. Just mm-hmm. like you just vote none of the above and like fuck this, make all y'all go back all over again. This is trash. Don't put me in this situation. Like uh uh-uh. uh. I mean, I but like what is that? What what happens? Who wins when that happens? I mean, I guess the point would be like you need to start over. Because I mean, at this point, I just, I I guess, I'm looking at it. I'm looking at the situation. Again, we're comparing Nina Turner to Chantel Brown and going, someone I know isn't shit versus someone who might not be shit by the end of it. It's just, it's just, it, it's uh, what? Follow that through to its logical conclusion. It's what? It's it's just the fact that it's like, dude, I don't want to be let down again. You know, right, you don't want to go through this. You don't want to go but, through this mess again. That's why I'm like, but Eric, to- Nina Turner could run as a independent and still be shit. No? True. So that, that's true. the thing. Like, I'm completely open to the conversation about not wanting to be coerced into a vote blue no matter whose who situation. What I don't completely understand is why the emphasis on the ballot line. Either a person is of integrity or they aren't. We all believed in Bernie Sanders regardless of him working, running as a Democrat because he spent 80 years living as an independent. And we thought he would do the right thing at the end of the day. And he's, and built, can, he's, well, and, he's built a record showing like he's – right. You know, and Nina, and Nina Turner, oh. I don't think that Nina Turner is sitting around here without any record. You can have, you can quibble and have legitimate criticisms of some things that she's done in her career, but like, let's not act like Nina Turner just rolled off a train from nowhere yesterday, right? She no, was, a, I get, you know, so, no. so this is the decision making and there's no need to prevaricate and go around and around in circles. The reality is I personally don't think that the ballot line is what we should be talking about. We should be talking about whether or not we can believe in a given candidate. And I can't sit here and listen to someone like Rebecca, Rebecca Parson, who's putting her, her her life on hold to run for office now for the second time. And, and she's the one with very limited resources who has to deal with the fact 
that she can't raise money if she doesn't run as a Democrat. She doesn't have access to the email list if she doesn't run as a Democrat. And a bunch of people on the left are sitting around on a podcast with our arms crossed saying, well, fuck you. I don't care. But we're not willing to actually support these people. So I'm, I'm here for the idea of people running yeah. their party. I hope that, you know, if someone on a mainstream like Marianne Williamson were to run, there'd be a, a robust third party slate, forward party, MVP, whatever. I want that to be the case as well. But like, I, I don't want to have this conversation like we live in a vacuum, like there aren't real consequences to us I, having this kind of performative distaste for I, you know, I get, Democratic candidates. Yeah, go ahead. I, I get that, Bree, and that kind of goes to my next point. Um, talking mainly about us as Black people. And in this, I know we're not a monolith by far. Hell no. But when I see a lot of the, at least down here, I'm in, I'm in Florida. I'm down in the South, dear God. Um, especially when you have like a lot of the Black elders. And they're over here going and going like, yeah, like like fight against this voter suppression and whatnot. And I'm and I'm sitting there going, well, the thought is incomplete. Okay, you also realize party suppression is part of that voter suppression, right? So, why are you not completing the thought? And I guess I just I just roll my eyes at my elders with that. I help help me understand. Because I don't want to feel like anybody's pigeonholed to these two parties. Hell no. Um, but I guess, I guess, like the whole. I guess my real, my full point is just why are we? Why are the elders not finishing the thought? Well, because they don't believe there's anything that's a viable alternative to the Democratic Party. The same, the same thing that everybody in every community thinks who's a Democrat. Only that that's black specific. I mean, I think black. No, but it's, black especially, it's, especially, more, it's especially bad with those. Yeah, this, I think black people are more is, risk averse. I, I think black people are more risk averse, but I don't think it's black specific. And so no, the reality no, is the same. It's the same conversation we're having around. Like, how do you make people take seriously the prospect of choosing something other than Democrats? Is it a branding exercise? Is it a messaging exercise? Do they need a better logo? Should it be the greens? Should it be a refurbished greens? Do we need to put, tear down the Democratic Party and ex- expose its flaws more? Or do we need to show a progressive running on the Democratic ticket who then defects at the end of the day in a way that Bernie didn't do and demonstrates that despite being very po- powerful among the people, the, dem- the party apparatus is willing to align against them and hurt them? So, I mean, so, I mean like I was – I guess because um because I because personally right now I I teach in public school mm-hmm. and I it, it kind of got me thinking like like why don't we why aren't we building something similar to I don't know if you know Caleb Moppin mm-hmm. but he kind of has like a, his his thing with CPI with the Center for Political Innovation so I'm saying like a hub for us to educate us and. I, I don't know, because at, at this point, it's just, like, we can't keep getting sheep herded into a party forever. Mm-hmm. You know, like, into either one of these parties. You know, it can't just be this red-blue game all day. Mm-hmm. Like. Yeah, I agree. And, you know, we, we're going to continue to have a conversation about what that looks like and how that happens. I appreciate you calling in, Eric. I'm 22 minutes over when I want oh, to Oh, my stop. bad. I'm going to take just a couple more quick questions and then uh, have some dinner. But thank you for calling in, and um, let's see what John has to say. 
Welcome, John. Unmute yourself and let me know what's on your mind. The unmute button's on the bottom right there, John. It looks like a little corn cob in a cup. It looks like a potato resting in a cup holder. Oh, okay. You didn't like that? <laughs> um, is this Free Assange Chris? I always know you as Free Assange Chris. It says time for revolution now, but whatever. It's okay. <laughs> What's on your mind, How, Chris? Hey, um, I heard you allude to your next episode, and I'm really keen to hear it. Just in uh, maybe as a preface to that, I'd like to you know give a comment and maybe ask you a question about this uh, this censorship. Chris, if you, don't, if you don't mind, I think that we should keep it to a question, and so we can, okay. so everyone can have an opportunity, and we can kind of get through a couple more people before ten thirty. Yeah, I appreciate you letting me on so late, and I know you're over what you said as a time limit. Um, so this thing with Joe Rogan is so interesting, and and Neil Young, I like love his music, and and uh, you know I've always liked him, but. Uh, it's hard to put somebody in that position when you just have a business relationship with uh, Spotify. Spotify is, you know, uh, as an anti-capitalist, I feel hard sympathy or feel bad sympathizing with them as a company. They're getting put in kind of a, a crap position. But um, I watched Joe Rogan's response last night to the criticism, and I don't know if it's coerced or just a genuine reaction to the criticism, but either way, it's like one of the most gracious responses and like shouts out Joni Mitchell shouts out Neil Young and Mm -hmm. and is really respectful. Um, and just says like, all I'm doing is having conversations. Uh, you know, I get things wrong sometimes and I try and correct that when I do. And I don't know, like, as a viewer, and I'm not a huge viewer of, of Joe Rogan's, but, you know, I I certainly sympathize with him right now. Um, I don't know how you could ask more of somebody than to be that gracious and say, like, when I get things wrong, I try and admit it. And, like, that's better than, you know, any mainstream media outlet, mm-hmm. you know, especially the ones that are critiquing him the most. So... Why do you think, I guess, to turn it into a question um, after a little bit of a diatribe, um, why do you think that people are so critical of Joe Rogan when he's, like, really one of the most gracious people? And, like, if I got critiqued the way he was right now, I would react in a a very different way. I'd be way more aggressive and he's just so gracious and gentle with people and just wants to have conversations. So why do you think that the push for censorship is as aggressive as it is? Why do you think Chris? Well, I don't really know. I mean, certainly, you know, as he alludes in his, his, uh, in his video, the, the McCullough interview and the Malone interview are the ones that are really the points of contention. And there's a certain narrative around COVID and any challenge to that really hasn't been accepted over the last year, year and a half. And, you know, Great Barrington, 
Barrington Declaration on, which happened in like October of 20. Um, there's just been not a great acceptance of any sort of pushback. And part of science is like being able to defend your position. You know, I, I studied math in college and, um, you know, you got to do your proofs and prove, you know, your your uh, theorem. And um, it seems like lately with this COVID thing, there's been a lot more group thinking and like no acceptance of diversified opinions and no acceptance of, of any pushback and complete marginalization of people who have any pushback. And part of science needs to be like proving your point. And if you can't prove and it, and res- well. exactly. Yeah. And that's why I, I, yeah, I don't know. So, it does yeah, feed into I, the narrative about politics and why the left doesn't, because we just don't provide the proof to, to, why we're right on everything. Yeah, on I think the things at the end we of the want, day, but... you know, back in the Go Bush ahead. era, there was this real belief that things were wrong in the world because Bush was stupid. And then Obama <laughs> was president, and there was this real belief that Obama was smart, so he was going to fix everything. And liberals are still in this world where they think that, like, there are objective truths. They have possession of them all. There is this deep commitment to technology. I'm just going to mute you just because you're wrestling around a little bit. There's this uh, deep commitment to technocracy that, you know, Thomas Frank writes a lot about that I think is really true. And this COVID stuff is like the perfect storm of that intersection between this commitment to, you know, singular academic truth and politics. And that people, I think, really sincerely thought that fewer people would have died if Joe Biden were president in 2020 and not Trump. And everyone's dealing with the cognitive dissonance of more people dying this year than last year, that you couldn't magically snap your fingers and have COVID go away, that Biden's not doing anything meaningfully different in terms of sending out tests, having a testing regime. He didn't do any of the things that are still up on his website that he promised he was going to do as a like a rapid COVID response. I just got my free tests in the mail. The four free tests are really two boxes with two tests each in them. And I'm grateful for them. I think it's the best thing that he's done in a while, but like, this is what we got two years into it. You know, it's the first thing, you know, I didn't get the checks. So this is the first thing that I've gotten in the whole COVID cycle. And as it arrives in this sad little FedEx bag, you know, it's, it's, it's a pathetic reminder of how there's nothing science about this. And so instead of actually admitting its flaws and dealing with the fact that there has been all this misinformation from the CDC (laughs) and, and Fauci, they're doubling down on creating villains out of the people that it presumes it can call stupid and punch down on. And that's someone like Joe Rogan, who's got this all shucks affability, which is really the root of his success. This like, I'm coming to issues blind and ignorant and I'm going to just ask you questions like the way a normal person would that normal people find very relatable and accessible, but technocrats on the left find to be confusing and opaque and um, they see, you know, nefarious uh, incentives in it where I don't really think any exist. You know, I think that Joe Rogan, like a lot of Americans, hears facts that are wrong and has bad opinions but also, unlike most Americans, has the integrity to be corrected when 
people offer meaningful meaningful pushback. I don't think he's an ideologue, and that's why people like the show because he's not. And instead of capitalizing on the fact that he's not an ideologue and you know pointing him toward facts that will lead him to the left, the liberals are hell bent on painting him as something other than what he actually is. You know, people tweet this all the time. You know, the I think Glenn Greenwald was saying this that over the last two years. Every you know conservative has been courting Joe Rogan nonstop and the liberals and much of the left has been pushing him away. And that is not to say you can't disagree with things that he believes and says, hell, we've all spent the whole year saying that we disagree with things that AOC says, but I certainly am not trying to deplatform <laughs> AOC. You know, you just say what you disagree with her about and you move on. You know, it's not that deep. Like here's the criticism. If a leftist wants to challenge AOC, I would support, you know, someone to her left, yeah, go for it. If, you know, if not, uh, I'm just going to keep trying to correct her mistakes. If if someone wants to correct Joe Rogan and offer some meaningful pushback, go on his show, have an alternate doctor. That's what he's going to do in response to all this pushback. He says he'll have some more mainstream sources. Or I don't know if those mainstream sources are going to have misinformation or not, because a lot of those people that have been on, on MSNBC and stuff have been lying to the public. But he's willing to hear from everybody. And I think that's all you can really ask for people. I, I don't know, man. libs who can understand them um let's take pedro and let's make him let's make them hello brianna can you hear me loud and clear what's on your mind pedro oh thanks uh so i was on twitter uh, today and i saw something interesting i would like to share it's about kamala Kamala harris Mm -hmm. and uh I'm just going to be real quick because I know you're out of time. So just quick question. Uh, mm-hmm. I saw I saw this quote. I'm going to read the quote is under a Biden-Harris administration, we, we will decriminalize the use of marijuana and automatically expunge all marijuana mm-hmm. use conventions. And this, mm-hmm. she said this like a couple of months before the election. Mm-hmm. And uh, if I may, I'm going to do a quick uh, experiment. Uh, I the, I have a clip of her saying this. It's really funny. It's just 30 seconds. Can I, can I put oh, the I clip? I have it. I was actually about to play it myself. Oh, go ahead. Yeah, I'm just scrolling right here. Here it is. I sent you a message, actually. Here you go. Under a Biden-Harris administration, we will decriminalize the use of marijuana and automatically expunge all marijuana use convictions and end incarceration for drug use alone. So this is no time, from I think our collective perspective, this is no time for half-stepping. Um, this is no time for incrementalism. We need to deal with the system. And there needs to be significant change in the design of the system. Under a Biden-Harris... All right. Oh, Pedro, go ahead and mute yourself. Yeah, that, that was it. That's, I just wanted to play that. Since, so I was wondering if you can comment a bit on that. Thanks. Yeah, of course. Uh, that was September 15th, 2020, a period known as before Biden is elected. Now that Biden is elected, he doesn't have to uh, be held accountable for any of his campaign promises. So that's what that is. <laughs> you know, I don't know, man. Like, yeah. here, here's the thing. At the end of the day, ooh, Pedro, you and that, you need a wind guard, my friend. You need a windscreen. Um, at the end of the day, Biden is 
what the kids colloquially call big dicking us, meaning that he can say whatever he wants to say and do whatever he wants to do, and no one's going to do anything about it. Remember when Donald Trump got up and told black people, what do you have to lose? You know, like, what you going to do about it? Joe Biden is doing this in his own special way. When he says you ain't black if you don't vote for me, like, he is telling you that he doesn't have to do a goddamn thing you say because you know that the threat of fascism or even, you know, Mitt Romney is enough to scare liberals into voting for a uh, Democrat no matter what. So all of this is completely irrelevant. Yeah, true. What I find kind of funny or sad at the same time is Mm -hmm. at this uh, White House press briefings, nobody kind of pushes, pushes them back on those issues of the promises, you know. Yeah. Well, a couple of times, it's funny this week, I've heard Jen Psaki say no comment in response to stuff, which suggests to me that the, the press corps is heating up a little bit. Maybe they're just bored. Um, but the no comment, the no comment means I can't even spin this. Yes. Uh, oh, since you mentioned that, uh, uh, some some weeks ago, somebody called a uh, Asked her about Julian Assange. Mm-hmm, exactly. And uh, the press freeman, and she said, no comment, uh, mm-hmm. just talk to the Justice Department or whatever. So. Right. Right. I think she did one of those about a student debt question as well. So, you know, I do appreciate the the journalists who are doing their little part, but I agree with you that it should be a nonstop assault. And frankly, it should have started before he was in office. You know, but instead we got, what, four or five months at the beginning of last year about how, it was, oh, it's just his first hundred days and give him a break and he's working on the CARES Act and da 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 or the American Rescue Plan and all of this stuff. And then it's very quickly pivoted to, oh, my God, we've run out of time. It's too late. Joe Manchin, Pearson Cinema, what can you do? Oh, well, midterms. Um, yes. As we all predicted. So thank you for calling in and drawing attention to that clip, Pedro. I agree. It was a spicy one. It was a... It's an important one. If we lived in a just society, uh, Don Lemon will be playing that every day during his hour, asking why uh, he hasn't fulfilled his promises to black people and why Kamala Harris hasn't been more verbal about the fact that her commander-in-chief has reneged on its obligations to a population without which uh, he would not have been elected, and a population which he specifically, in the course of his career, has heaped tons of pain through his own policy decisions. So here we are, and let's wish and hope for a better America going forward. I dream a dream (laughs) once again. (laughs) Thank you for calling in, Pedro. You're welcome. Thank you. Good night. Um, Thank you to all of you who are in the queue. I see the queue is still long. You guys have such patience, such perseverance such a commitment to these issues. I really do. I have so much respect for each and every one of you. You really hang in there. I keep doing these long streams thinking nobody wants this. Go to bed, Brianna. Like, don't take out the fact that you live an isolated existence in this Fakakta city, in this studio apartment, on these listeners who might feel compelled to consume your content. Free them of the obligation of having to listen to this stream. But here you guys are, still 77 strong at the end of the night, late on a Monday, and I appreciate every single one of you. I wish there was a way to, like, save the queue so the people who are waiting could be first in line on the other end of things. Alas, there is not. As always, I implore you, like, there were some, like, fun bits. There were fun bits. We had some nice moments in this stream. Use the clip feature in this app. We had no clips from the last episode, much to my chagrin, because I really loved the last episode. Go ahead and clip a nice little two-minute hunk so I can post it to social media and people can understand 
all of the good work that we're doing in here in the sense of community that's being developed. Clip it. I will post it to social, you know, if you care about bragging rights, <laughs> things like that, retweet, like it'll come. I will do it. Um, it's very helpful to me. Let your friends know that you do not have to have an, an iPhone to listen to this episode after the fact. You can listen to it in the web browser, even though you can't call in yet. If you have an Android, I hear that they are working on that. You can also point them to the first hour or so, which was on Bad Faith YouTube. I appreciate it. If you subscribe to the YouTube channel, even if you can't afford to subscribe to the Patreon, I completely understand. But the clicks and the likes and the upvotes on the videos really do help us beat the algorithm. So does sharing to social media. Um, Thursday's episode is going to be a banger. I'm excited about it. I'm excited to talk to you about it on Thursday night. Uh, as always, take care of yourself and remember to keep the faith. I was a lion in the tall grass. Wish I had a pilot and a podcast. Wish I had a strong donkey that can haul ass and travel with portable speakers playing bars scats. Wish I had a million dollars. I wish I had a million albums. I wish I had a million problems. That way I couldn't pinpoint all one million outcomes. I wish I found a genie lamp. I wish them girls gave me them sugar like Beanie Man. I wish I was a comedian, late night sitcom syndicated on TV land. I wish this well had water in it. These kids are stealing all my pennies. Focused on my wealth. You can help me wish, but I would rather wish for help. It's like, it's like, I wish, I wish that every time we love and it feels just like this. I wish, I wish that every time we do it, it feels just like this. I wish, I wish, that every time we love and it feels just like this, it feels just like this, it feels just like this.